Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer from our space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 968 to 981. As always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 968. Naked and Afraid, written by Ayas. John returned to his senses with a groan. As far as he could tell, he was lying on the ground with the mother of all headaches. He tried to open his eyes, but the blinding sunlight shot pain arrows through his eyes, all the way up to his fuzzy feeding brain. He tried to stand up, but the world was spinning. On his ass would do fine then for now. Where am I? D- did I get plastered again last night? He asked himself. Confused, he managed to take a look around him, through squinted eyelids, trying to clear the static in his head, and getting his bearings. He was in a grassy clearing in the middle of a strange-looking forest. His eyes fell onto himself. What the hell? He was naked, like butt-naked, and in the middle of nowhere. First thought was that the guys in his crew pranked him. Running a bit onto his side, he managed to stand up. Blood raised to his head and made him dizzy again. He stood still for a couple of seconds, eyes closed, waiting for the world to stop spinning so damn fast. And he slowly opened them and looked around one more time. The tree fifty yards farther, the grass at his feet. He didn't recognize any of it. Hello, is anyone there? He shouted. No answer came, just some birds that chirped and took flight from the nearest tree and some critters that screeched somewhere deeper into the woods. Not knowing what to do, he started to look more carefully around the place he woke up, looking for uh, anything, really. For his clothes, for footprints, for tire tracks, for a path, anything. And he found absolutely nothing. The grass was untouched except for his footprints, and for his body print, It was like he had been dropped on that spot right from the sky. Seeming that that would be the only option, his gaze shifted upwards, and his jaw dropped. There were two suns visible. Two! He rubbed his eyes, hoping it was a double vision. He looked up again. Yep, uh, two happy yellow suns were shining bright on the peaceful clearing and on one hopelessly confused human. About an hour later, the headache was mostly gone, and his mind was clear. He had thought hard, and was pretty sure that he remembered every last of his conscious minutes. He'd been on a merchant ship from Earth, to the colony of Acadia. Last thing he remembered was that they were in hyperspace, with only about ten hours left until destination. When something went wrong, and the ship was thrown out of hyperspace lane, with all the alarms blaring... After that, darkness. He didn't know what went wrong. He just was accountant on board. He had no clue about all of that FTL stuff worked, or what could go wrong with it. But he clearly was on an alien planet. There was no wreckage around him, not a scratch on his body, and someone had removed his clothes. If that doesn't say alien abduction, I don't know what will, he mumbled to himself looking a little more suspicious around him, as if he expected little grey aliens to pop their heads out of the toilet grass at any time. 
wondering what the hell to do next. He started to go around the clearing, by the edge of the forest looking for paths, tracks. He decided to wait around this clearing for now, and not wander too far. Whoever put him here might return. Maybe they saved him, and hopefully the rest of the crew too, from the fading ship. At least they put him on a planet where he could breathe, and not somewhere like Mars or something. That meant that they wanted him to live, right? But why take his clothes? As he reached the farthest end of the clearing, he heard the faint sound of water gurgling. He followed the sound and found a small creek bubbling through the forest. John approached carefully, then squatted near the water. He tested it with one finger. Seemed like normal water, as far as he could tell. He picked up some into cupped hands and smelled it. It smelled a bit like rotten leaves, but nothing really unpleasant. Took a sip into his mouth and didn't feel anything strange. Even if he was very thirsty, he only, only had a few sips. He was going to have to wait a few hours. If he was going to feel no other side effects, he was going to have his fill then. Without even realizing it, he'd entered into surviving mode. You know, like thinking about water, shelter, fire, and food. So, before he left the creek, he collected some rocks, thinking to make himself a hearth. He returned to the clearing, but he didn't go to where he'd woken up a couple hours earlier. He stayed on the end of the clearing, closer to the forest, and to the little creek. He looked up and tried to see the two sons moved, to see if he should expect nightfall soon. Indeed, both sons seemed to have moved a bit in different directions, but it looked like he still had a lot of daylight left. All right, John, you can do this. You've watched enough survival programs. You've read Robertson Crusoe. You can make it through this. Whatever this is, he mumbled to himself. Search party from Earth is sure to find the ship. Or what's left of it. And I'm guessing this planet is somewhere near our crash. Or oh, whatever saved me, or took me, from the ship is probably going to return. I just gotta find myself a Wilson and stop talking to myself. Three days later, he had progressed somewhat. He had made himself a lean-to at the edge of the forest under a solid-looking tree, packed it with soft, dry grass and leaves made himself some sort of grass skirt to protect his privates from the scratching and the dirt, and he tested some berries and fruits he picked from the forest, and so far, they were all edible. The water had been okay, too. The night before he managed to start a fire using two pieces of dried wood, just like in the old movie Castaway. And today, he was building himself some tools, or at least he tried. He was at his tenth or ninth attempt at making some sort of blade by chipping the edge of a flat rock the size of his palm. He had not been pleased at all with the results of his last attempt, but his hands already hurt from banging the rocks all day, so this tenth blade will just have to do. Proud of himself, he placed the sharpened rock and next to the polar that he made earlier that morning. In the last three days, regarding fauna, he'd seen only birds and insects, about ten species of birds, with sizes between a sparrow and a geese. He made the bowler thinking of going hunting for some protein. He could have made himself a spear, but his chances of bagging one of those geese was higher with a bowler. A knotty length of wood completed his arsenal, 
taking the role of a club. Finishing his project for the day, John stood up, getting ready to go foraging for some berries. He stretched and froze. At the opposite side of the clearing, about a hundred yards away, a flock of big birds were exiting the forest. He slowly crouched, careful not to spook them. They were big, actually. They were the biggest birds he'd seen so far. Alien blood or not. They looked like Big Bird from Sesame Street and had an affair with an ostrich. Their feathers were mostly greyish, with some more coloured ones at the top of their heads. They had two long, powerful-looking legs, pear-shaped body, but not really upright, a bit inclined forward. Long neck, but way thicker than the neck of an ostrich. The head and the huge beak looked exactly like that of a shoe-bold stork. They didn't look like they were flying birds. They were too big. He had to admit that they were an impressive sight, an opinion shared by his stomach, which began to grumble at the sight of all the feather-covered protein. John looked at the polar and the club, looked back at the flock of birds, rubbed his grumbling stomach, and decided to try and hunt one. Still crouching, he grabbed his club in one hand and the bowler in the other, slightly lifting his head above the tall grass to check the flock's movements one more time. After exiting the grass, the birds spread out into the clearing, slowly making their way towards the center, probably grazing, or hunting insects and whatnot. John did a quick count and numbered eleven of them, with that seemed to be an alpha male in the middle of them. John checked the wind's direction. It was blowing from left to right. Keeping low to the ground, he slipped into the forest and began to run as quiet as he could, circling to the right of the birds. His intention was to use the cover of the forest and flank the birds from downwind. He hoped to bring down the bird furthest on the right and scare the rest. If the birds proved too tough, he would dash back into the forest using the trees and bushes as cover. Five minutes later, he was on their right flank, watching them from the cover of the lost trees. The birds were slowly walking, spread out almost in a row, and they were near the middle of the clearing. Let's do this, thought John to himself. He lowered himself and slipped through the grass towards the closest of the birds. When he was about ten paces away, he stood up slowly and started swinging the bowler. The bird heard him and turned its head towards him with a surprised croak. It didn't explode into a run, as any bird on earth would, when surprised by anything. They probably don't have any predators or hunters to run from, thought John, and released the bird with a powerful swing. The weapon hit the alarm bird and wrapped around its neck. The bird managed to squawk once and dropped to the ground. Its feathered wings, which had small talons at one of their joints, were pointlessly trying to get the butt off. As the other birds turned towards him in a surprise and alarm, John yelled like a madman and started to run towards his victim, waving his club around and trying to scare away the rest of the flock. Shoo! Shoo! You overgrown turkey! Shoo! The closest three or four birds began to run away from him in a confused panic. But the big one in the center, the alpha of the flock, released an angry screech, stopping them in their tracks. The alpha lowered its nasty-looking beak and began to run to the aid of the fallen mate. God oh, damn it, thought John. Big bird got balls. 
He considered his initial thought of retreating to the forest, but he didn't want to leave his catch to slowly die of suffocation. It was his duty to put it out of its misery. He was also very, very hungry. So he faced the charging alpha, gripping his club in both hands. When the alpha was about two yards away, it lapped at him with its legs and its corresponding talons forward. John stepped to the left, swinging his club as Big Bird flew past him. He hit it in its extended legs, and the bird landed nasty with a screech of pain. John leapt to it and swung his club again straight at its head, putting an end to its anguish. He then turned towards the rest of the flock and screamed at them again. This time, seeing their leader killed, the other birds broke into a panic and fled. Breathing, relieved, John returned to the bird with a bowler around its neck. It was almost passed out. He lowered himself next to it, put one knee on its neck and grabbed hold with both hands in the bird's head and beak. With a sudden and powerful upward twist, broke its neck and killed it. Of all the cruiser steel talent, the War Council of the Barry was watching in horrified silence as a satellite live feed from the planet below. The planet's designation was Special Forces Training Facility. It was here that they were tested their tactics, improved their performance of their troops, organized war games, and where they researched how other species fought before engaging in a war against them. When they discovered the humans, they didn't initiate contact. They observed and studied them, looking for weaknesses. They managed to capture one specimen from a commercial ship and dropped it into the training planet. After observing it for a couple days to see what the human eats and how it behaves, its sleeping cycle, and so on, a special first squad was sent to sharpen their talents and skills by hunting the human. And the reports from the first days had been rather boring. The last hour of live feed had been something straight out of a nightmare. The human took everyone by surprise by attacking the elite squad of Barry warriors. Nobody expected that. They were expecting it to run, maybe, but up a fight when cornered. But for him to attack an entire squad by himself? Madness. When the first warrior went down by a strange crafted weapon of the human, it was almost excusable. You could blame it on the surprise of the attack. When the brave squad leader stopped his panicking frontmates and bravely charged the alien, every member of the war council watching the feed puffed up his feathers with pride and admiration. But the swift and ugly death that followed put them all in a state of shock. And the scenes that followed wouldn't allow them to exit that state. The cold-blooded execution of the first armed warrior, a prisoner of war by any rules, sent chills down to the top of their chests, down their tail feathers. The satellite feed didn't have sound, but when the human broke the warrior's neck, with its bare hands, everyone heard in their heads an ugly crunch as the warrior's spine. After that, they watched in horror as the human carried both fallen troops back to his camp and began to pluck all the feathers from their still warm bodies. Why? Why, why would he desecrate the corpses like that? Asked the young captain in disbelief. He, hear anyone? He killed them. There is nothing more for him to gain from torturing their bodies. The horrors did not stop there. 
After the corpses had been thoroughly plucked, they watched as the human picked up a sharpened rock and slit their bellies and began gutting them. There were very few members in the council that did not vomit when the human put his paws up to his elbow into the four troops and began yanking out their guns. Every one of the members of the war council wanted to stop looking, to stop the satellite feed. But it was their duty to watch, to be prepared for the horrors that a war with humans could mean. They owed it to the two fallen soldiers to watch their desecration until the end. And so they watched. They watched how the human hastily built some sort of rack from a few branches, and then began cutting the flesh from the dead troops. She couldn't tell them apart now, into thin strips, and sending them onto the rack, one strip after another. The actions of the humans were beyond their power of comprehension. After finishing his gruesome task of stripping the flesh from one of the cadavers, the humans started a fire. Many first had managed to start a fire two days ago by rubbing some pieces of wood together, the body had been impressed. Now they were numb with pain and were just wondering, with a sick fascination. What would the barbaric creature do next? The human made two holes in the ground on the sides of the hearth and wedged a piece of wood into each hole, fixing them to stand upright. Then he sharpened a longer straight branch at the end, and then he... Here, not even a single member of the council was able to keep his face during this big screen. They all turned and lowered their heads, some heaving heavily, as the human plunged the sharpened pole into the backside of the second corpse, and pushed and hammered it in until the sharp end extended through the neck of the corpse. He pushed some more until a good length of the bloodied wood was visible on both sides. With a heave, he placed the pole on the impaled trooper over the burning fire, with the ends of the poles suspended on the upright pieces of wood planted on either side of the fire. The silence in the war council was heavy. The air was thick, with the smell of puke from the bari that didn't make it to the facilities and had vomited right there. They were staring with blank eyes at the horror on the screen. Nobody had the power to even move anymore. They stood like that for more than half an hour in silence. Thankfully, the human seemed to have finished his horrific spree and was now sitting calmly by the fire, adding pieces of wood on it from time to time and sometimes rotating the gruesome paw. General Conk, a veteran of many wars, managed to find the strength to croak meekly. Perhaps the beast has finally sated his thirst for revenge, and this is a um, funeral pyre. The rest of his words died in his throat as the human reached for a sharpened stone, and, with lustful eyes and trembling, unpatient hands, cut a piece of the corpse and put it in his mouth. The senior general reached for a remote and mercifully shut down the screen. They all stood frozen for a few minutes. This is madness! I will not send even one of my soldiers against that! I 
have never seen such cruelty in the universe. War against this species is out of the question. We will continue to avoid them and inform all other races that we are in contact with to avoid them too. The recording of these events must be sealed and never shown to the public or our troops. The words of the senior general were met with a mute but unanimous agreement. The decision to avoid humans lifted some of the heaviness from the rumor. It was until the big screen came back online, on its own, but this time it was not a satellite feed, but the screen was filled with the image of an angry human in a military-looking outfit. This is Admiral Colgane of the battleship HMS, the Hound. May I ask, in the name of what in the Almighty did you have in mind when you attacked one of our merchant ships? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 969 Story number one, Distress Call, written by Guncaster 2 382 Imperial Years Post-Heresy We meant no harm. It was just another reclamation mission, another attempt at saving a remote world which our war against the faith had destroyed centuries prior. We were to set up an outpost, evaluate the state of the environment, and begin environmental repair operations. A few old war machines were expected to have remained active even through the centuries, so we sent out universal reactivation signal as per protocol. We did not expect the faith to have set a trap of such scale. The stone beneath our feet shook and shuddered. Tremendous wounds in the earth reopened, and the bowels of the planet crawled, walked, and skittered and skulked a thousand abominations against the draconian form. They belched toxic sludge and bent the fabric of reality around them in all the wrong ways their flesh shifting and hardening seemingly at random, the cursed soil beneath their feet undulating as though alive. Grotesque mockeries of our forms rebuilt and reshaped, not with steel and metal, but with reality itself, bent to the will and the faith of a fundamental level. The last act of the faith upon the world was to desecrate the bodies of the fallen to twist and contort their legacies into little more than walking engines of death and destruction, slumbering within the poisoned soil. Waiting for us to land and try to reclaim that which was rightfully ours. I... I fought in that war. I fought the once high chaplain, Ultibuzz, but no more. Not until that day. On that day, I was thrust back into the fire. We have neither the equipment nor the manpower to handle the situation. And so, we called for help. If there was even a single Imperial ship within the transmission range, they would be here within minutes. I knew there were none, and so did my men. This mission had taken so long to get off the grounds because the planet was so remote we sent a distress call nonetheless. By my estimations, our position would be overrun in half a day at most. Sixty-four draconians landed that day, 
fifty of the warrior caste, ten of the thinker caste, and four of the shapers, those whose power to bend reality rivaled even clan elders. Fifty-one lay dead in the mud, or worse. And only one of the shapers remained, only three of the thinkers did. The horde was not letting up, and neither the turrets nor the shield projectors were going to hold up for longer than a few minutes. The ground was slick with a mixture of bodily fluids. The turrets had long ruined their focusing crystals and were now firing shotgun-like bursts instead of focused beams. The single shaper they had left was bleeding from his tattoos, geysers of blood gushing from his diminutive figure each time something impacted the defensive field, which he'd been holding up alone for hours prior. It was a technique meant to be used by a full squad of shapers. The ultimate defense, wherein the fabric of the world itself is used as a shield. He could have become an elder in mere decades if he was sent on any other mission instead of this one. The distress beacon pinged. Someone received the call and had sent a confirmation back. But it was not an Imperial ship. It was them, the many-limbed ones. The sky wept tears of fire as crimson comets ripped through the atmosphere at ten times the speed of sound. Tremendous bursting jets of red energy propelled their infernal machines downwards. A masculine voice sounded from the distress beacon. My translator implant kicked in. This executive offer, Anoa... His executive officer, Inoa Nobumitsu of the Nova Human Sovereign Breaker Corps, 39th Company, remain in position and reduce reality warping to a minimum. I repeat, remain in position and reduce reality warping to a minimum. It would be perhaps a minute or two before they landed. I reached deep within myself and roared a battle cry that I had not used since the heresy. This day... Death claims every soul but ours. Their machines shattered the ground around the outpost as they landed, kicking up tremendous clouds of dust and rubble and crushing many of the dead ones underfoot before they even entered the fray. The shaper collapsed, the shock breaking his focus and causing his near-death levels of exhaustion to catch up with him. I could just barely see one of the tremendous war machines, huge beasts of gleaming silver and polished black stone, covered in occult symbols which shine with an unholy orange light of a place beyond thought. Its armor plating resembled some perverse misinterpretation of Draconian royal garb, a manufactured holy knight. It had two eyes, like the many-limbed ones, and a third above. Its head was crowned by three pairs of bent-back horns, and in its arms it clutched a living metal sword larger than itself. It burst forth faster than I could see, ripping a trail on the ground and cleaving a swath through the dead ones. As the dust cleared, I saw that none were alike. One of the machines was a bright red and had a giant shoulder plate cover its left arm. It had a massive jewel for one arm, and a hollow tube with some sort of rod coming out the back for the other. 
had emitted green toxic particles from the back which formed into the shape of a flowing cape. Another was as though one of their kind merely made huge. One had gigantic railguns for arms, railguns on its shoulders, and some sort of energy weapon mounted within its torso, where I expected the cockpit to be. I wondered where the pilot was, but then it came to be. These war machines mimicked the natural bodies of the many-limbed ones. They moved all too naturally to be controlled like a ship. They had linked their minds to their machines, become one with them. In the fray, I failed to notice that along with the giants, there were also many-limbed ones on foot, and even they moved faster than nature would allow. Their savage punches and kicks causing supersonic cracks, their bodies all had the same traits, the same style armor, the same style mask the same casement of red crystals around the left arm. But they differed enough that individuals were recognizable, both in their weaponry and physical silhouette. With the blades of singing steel, they cut through the discarded hordes of my former brethren. With their unholy light, they forced them to fight on equal terms with them, without their perverted version of the sacred arts. There must have been dozens of machines and hundreds of many-limbed ones on the ground, for in their rampage they carved out a circle around the outpost, and the circle was getting larger by the minute. I know not for how long I watched the fray as my men tended to each other's wounds, but I came to realize one thing. I kept seeing the same machine where I thought there were multiple, the same marked visage where I thought there were multiple men. There were not hundreds of them. There were less than a dozen at most. But no more than half a dozen of those infernal machines. Another comet ripped through the heavens. It landed then the closest to the housepost of all of them. Up close, I could see that it was some sort of drop pod. It burst apart with a loud hiss and from within stood up a strange visage. It was clearly one of the many-limbed ones, but his body was different. He had no suit, no second pair of arms. One of his eyes was a flaming pit. His face was not a face. I could see exposed muscle intermingling with metal and polymer, veins mixing with tubes, I'd been told that the many-limbed ones often changed their bodies to an extreme degree. But this was beyond what I imagined. He spoke, and I recognized the voice that came out. It was then that I realized it was not static that made him sound so rough with the transmission. His actual voice really did sound like that. It was deep and gravelly and conveyed a distinct sense of both power and pride. I am executive officer Inoa Nabitsu of the Nova Human Sovereignty Breaker Corps, 39th Company. I presume you are the one who issued the distress call. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 970. Heavy Metal. Written by Ice Cream and Wine. Gag watched appreciatively 
as the dancer finished his set. She'd been graceful and elegant. He tipped 200 units into the common pot. Maybe a bit more than he should have, but he was feeling good and had the units to spare. He took a pull from each drink and waited for the show to resume. And then he saw the symbol on his table light up. Oh, he thought to himself as he saw the dancer make her way to his table. I like the way this is going, he thought. He pulled out a chair for her and offered to buy her a drink. She indicated what she wanted, and he made the order. She was even better looking, closer, and he thought to himself, Don't screw this up, you ham-fisted idiot. She reached across the table to him and, uh... The pleasant scene in front of his eyes dissolved into swirling colors accompanied by a disoriented two-tone alarm. Ah, damn it, he thought, as he was slammed back into reality. Why am I not surprised? He switched off the alarm and let the nodules in the pot knead the back of his legs for a few minutes to bring his muscles back into play. He climbed out of the sleep station and did the mandatory exercises, stretching, bending and twisting his body until he was satisfied that he was ready for duty. His thorn rifle and helmet were extruded from the live ship bulkhead and he equipped them. He used to think, how did it all work? But as no answer was forthcoming, he just accepted that, that that was the way that it was. His eyes fell under the symbol glowing on the bulkhead. The captain? What does the captain want with me? Still, having no time for idle conjecture, activating the door and strode to the corridor. He left in haste, in such a haste in fact, that he didn't notice that the other two symbols that had appeared under the first one. He made his way into the bridge, greeting others as he passed them in the corridor, until he turned into the command area. He stopped, dead. There were two additional guards outside the bridge, an acolyte of Exarch, and a high-born guard. In his experience, this was rare, and rarer still, there appeared to be no tension between them. They weren't there when I went for my resting period. Politics and religion together. This can't be good, he thought to himself. He entered his entry code, and the door vanished and reappeared after he passed through the opening. He entered and took in the room in a glance. The captain had a command station, and to one side of her was a highborn, a youngling by the looks of it, and on the other side an aging exarch of the exalted order, and various crew members at their stations. Ah, Kirk, better late than never, said the captain in a tone of voice which absolutely did not, I repeat, did not scream, watch what you do, what you say. As for protocol, Kirk responded, as you command, Captain. We require the benefit of your experience, Kirk. What do you make of this? said the captain, indicating the glowing panel in front of her. He looked at the panel. What sort of game is this? he thought. Aloud, he said, it appears to be some sort of sh... It was interrupted by a dry voice of the exarch. It is customary for soldiers to appear barefaced in the presence of the agents of the Order, is it not? As he reached for his helmet, another voice arrested his movement. It is customary for soldiers to be unarmed in the presence of a highborn, is it not? Said the highborn. However, on board ship, it is requirement is negated. The Order's requirements takes precedence over the wishes of the highborn, do they not? Croaked the exarch. 
Unknown, that may or may not be the case, said the highborn. However, we are not unknown. Therefore, those requirements are invalid. You have a front... The exact voice was cut off by the captain. On board, all crew members are helmeted and armed whilst in duty. But, croaked the exarch, enough of this, said the captain. The helmet and the rifle stay on board the ship. I have final authority as given by a high-born council and the conclave. This will be brought up in the conclave meeting upon our return, rasped the indignant exarch. Kirk, noticing the look the highborn gave the exot, thought to himself, I wonder what the odds are I can get the exot never to make it back home. Now to business, said the captain. What are your thoughts on this? Kirk looked at her unreadable face and gave the only answer he could. Some kind of ship, he said, though not a configuration I'm familiar with. What would you do prior to being ordered to attack and or capture this ship? said the captain in a tone of voice that absolutely said, Don't let yourself, and more importantly, me, down. Kirk heard his training say, Size, composition, weapons, drive, and crew. That's what we need to know. Proceed, said the captain. Kirk turned to the sensor technician. What have we got? It's huge, he said. Eight miles by four miles by two miles. Huge. That's not possible, said Kirk. Our own ship is not even a mile in length. Nevertheless, that's what the scans indicate, said the tech. As for the composition of crew, unknown. The scans are inconclusive. It would seem that somehow the scans are being reflected. As for weapons, no pulse signatures, no energy signatures, no thorn signatures, no indications of any known weapon system at all. As for drive, no live drive signature, no Q signature, no slip drive signatures, no recognizable signatures at all. That's impossible, said Kirk. No weapons, no drive. No known drive or weapon systems, said the technician in the I'm just telling you what the system says, no more or less, tone of voice, in tandem with the If it all goes down to the tubes, you ain't blaming it on me, voice. Recommendations, said the captain. May we still stealthed and undetected, asked Kirk. Fully under stealth, and Target shows no signs of knowing our presence. That's all we got, said Kirk. That's it, said the tech. Nothing in the common files that comes even close to what we are seeing, said the tech. This is pointless, came the harsh voice of the exarch. We have done all of this before he was summoned. He has brought nothing to the situation. Kirk thought to himself, thank you very much for that, you little shit. Kirk turned to the tech. Nothing of our files. What about the files that we've uh, acquired from other species? The captain said to the exarch, this is why he is the raid leader and you are, uh, what you are. I can't access those files without the proper clearance, said the tech. Who has the clearance? asked Kirk. I have the authorization, grated the exarch, but I refuse to give the codes to a common soldier, nor even the captain, as it would be a dereliction of my duties to the conclave. The captain was getting annoyed. Even if it costs the conclave their share of the spoils, she said. That is contrary to the protocols of con... The exarch was cut off by the captain. 
I'm not putting the ship or my crew at risk for you to play the I'm-just-borrowing-the-rules card. This is Nazi! Again, the exot was interrupted by the captain. Has got the exot to his quarters, she said. This is blasphemy! screamed the exot as he was surrounded by four soldiers, lifted bodily to his feet and carried out. The sounds of outrage faded as he was carried down the corridor. Kirk thought to himself, Crap! The arch dispelled through the floor. I'm much better there, said the highborn. Mind you, he's an up-himself idiot, though, and whilst I concur with your decision and its implementation, unfortunately I do not have codes that you require. Saying that, he gave the captain a searching look. I believe I will retire to my quarters to await the conclusion of this embarrassment in a voice that most definitely did not, and I repeat, did not say, do what you have to do, and with that, he departed. Suggestions are welcome, said the captain. Um, uh, if we give me a cleared bridge in a little time, I might be able to effect a solution, said the tech. A cleared bridge with my back turned to you is the best offer that you're going to get, said the captain. Um, uh, uh, that'll do, said the tech. They all filed out. Then the captain called back the tech who had spoken up. Kirk filed out with all the others. Sometime later, they were all called back in. Not only will none of you ever mention this event to anyone in the future, this event never actually took place at all. Is that understood? There was a chorus of, Yes, captains, and eyes. Kirk spoke up. What about the ship files? Won't they have a record of this? No, they won't, said the captain, looking at the tech, who had the grace to look abashed. What was in the hidden files? asked Kirk. Only one species we know of has any sort of knowledge of this type of ship. A Dorakan squadron encountered a ship that resembles what we're looking at. What happened? Of course, them being the Dorakan, then they being in their mating cycle at that time, they attacked the ship which was bigger than the one we're looking at. And, said Kirk, their group was destroyed, every single ship. Only a beacon survived their broadcast of their fate, said the tech. That's, um, impossible. It occurred to him that he may have used the word impossible a lot more times since he was awakened than in his life prior to this point, said Kirk. The Dorakan are almost on par with ourselves, and that would have been a lot of ships. The captain said, indeed, a lot of ships. Normally there are twenty-four ships in a Dorakan scout squadron. But they are only small craft, no ships of battle. Even so, said Kirk, they have nearly the same level of weapons as we have, even though their ships are not as durable as ours. Captain, said another tech, in our dump files there appears to be a historical record of our people meeting a ship of the size ratio, but it was a bigger ship. However, it was not in our space, but far out in the outer reaches of the spiral arm. Continue, said the captain. It was a hundred cycles ago, which is why it was not part of the main files. It was most likely added as an afterthought, probably because the report would not have been seen to be credible. Not credible? What details are there? asked the captain. To be honest, not much at all, but just the similarity in design of the ship and the apparent lack of a drive and weapons, said the tech. There was no hostile contact with the alien vessel, but a stealth probe gathered some information that is interesting. Interesting? In what way? asked the captain. 
The alien ship was made of metal, said the tech. Made of metal. That's impo- thought Kirk, biting off the rest of the sentence. Damn it! Why did our ship not gain more information? asked the captain. According to records, they were damaged and at the very limit of their range. If not having passed their safe return point, if they took any action at all, they would not have been able to return home. Is this an official record? asked the captain. It appears to be so, said the tech. How closely do the descriptions of the ships match? asked Kirk. The ratios are the same, but the other vessel is bigger than this one, said the tech. Also, it tells us that these craft range far and wide, out in the spiral arm, in our space and the Dorakan space, at the very least. Reasonable to assume that they were ships of the same species then, said Kirk. If the size ratios match, probably not a coincidence. Agreed, said the captain. We need to recall the Exart and the Highborn to let them know what we have discovered. First of all, said Kirk, we must confirm that the ship is of the same type encountered in the past. Can we get a stealth probe onto it? The alien vessel has shown no deviation in its course and is likely that they cannot pierce our stealth. So a stealth probe is more than possible, said the tech. In that case, I recommend the deployment of a stealth probe, said Kirk. Do it, said the captain. How long will it take to deploy and how long will it take for the information to come back? No time to deploy it all, uh. as far as the information transfer, that is unknown, said the tech. A while later, Kirk looked in amazement at the probe's transmission. The hull contains metals and is over a yard thick. Just what have we found here? If this ship is made of metal, how much would there be? asked the highborn. More than our own continent, certainly, said the tech. Possibly more than the whole of the home. We must acquire it, barbled the Axarch, who looked as if he was suffering from some sort of seizure. So much metal, sir, riches, slaves, and the road to total dom- He cut himself off. We must do everything in our power to seize it or the order. Most high! The emotions playing across his face were obvious to all that were present. Greed, hope, the lust for power, all writ large in his eyes. One of those readings, Kirk said to the tech. Lifeform readings, said the tech, and odd readings at that. How so? asked the captain. 240 mobile lifeforms pulsing with some form of life. 2,116 immobile lifeforms at lower life levels and innumerable immobile lifeforms at barely detectable life levels. Are some of them injured, or what? said the captain. The life force reading on all groups is steady. There is no fluctuations at all, said the tech. Are the life form readings compatible with our own? asked the highborn. I don't know, said the tech. They seem to be surrounded by some sort of field, an aura or radiance. Can't even get a reading of their physical shape. What can you tell us about them, then? Stopped the exarch, who seemed to have recovered somewhat from his earlier outburst. They appear to be two-thirds of our size. The atmosphere seems similar to ours, but a little bit thinner. Gravity, a little heavy for us, but not catastrophically so. Those conditions would appear to be ship-wide. That's about it, the text said. The active life forms are mostly concentrated in just over a cubic mile of space at the front of the ship. The not-so-active life forms occupy a similar area adjacent to this area. The barely active life forms are spread throughout the ship. 
In addition, there appears to be an area of biomass in order of eight-odd cubic miles in the middle of the ship. Purpose unknown. The ship consists of multiple levels. There is no more you can tell us, asked the captain. So much metal would appear to be limiting the scans. That is all the information we have, said the tech. Not much to go on, said the captain. On the contrary, said the highborn. From what little we do know, in my opinion, it is safe to assume that these aliens are capable of defending themselves in a way which we have no knowledge of, and therefore can be classified as dangerous to interact with. You can say that again, said the tech. You can say that again, said the tech. The dragon attacked in standard formation, and in no short order was smeared all over the sector, by some unknown weapon system, whilst doing no damage to the alien vessel. I said it before, and I'll say it again, said Kirk. A Dorakan scout squadron, while not heavily armed, are no joke to encounter in battle, as our history often shows. Yet they did no damage to the alien vessel at all. That is concerning, as they fundamentally use the same weapons as we do, which does not bode well. I tend to agree, said the captain. As the species go, they aren't that bright. But their fighting prowess cannot be denied. Enough talk, barked the exarch. It is our duty to gather the spoils of battle and return them to home for the glory of the ore. I mean the most high. I sit there listening to the... They are dangerous. They should be left alone. It seems this ship is crewed by weaklings and cowards. We should... Kirk growled in his throat and looked at the captain who nodded almost imperceptibly. Kirk walked over to the Exarch. Weaklings and cowards, is it? The Exarch looked up and swallowed nervously as Kirk loomed over him. I will give you one chance afforded to you by the honor code to withdraw your statement, else I will challenge you to personal combat here and now, said Kirk. The Exarch stammered. Combat? You can't do that! The voice of the captain interrupted him again. He can, and he is within his rights to do so. The honor code, co-signed by the Order, and the Highborn allows... No, almost demands it. It seemed to Kirk that the Highborn was trying unsuccessfully to stifle the smirk. This is outrageous! shouted the Exarch. That statement is contradicted by the honor code. Continued the captain. We await your reply. Kirk turned away from the exile and walked to the bulkhead, from where his thorn sword was extruded. He took it and walked back to stand in front of the exile. The exile couldn't take his eyes from the sword. It was as if he was hypnotized by it. Suddenly, a gunning look crossed his face and his eyes flicked to the door. If you are thinking that your acolyte could stand in your stead, you are correct. However, after he is dead, the challenge will remain, said the captain. But if, said the Exarch, no ifs or buts, the challenge will still remain. Remember, if you will, the Exarch of the live ship 273. Yes, I remember, shouted the Exarch. Foully murdered. Not so, said Ironborn smoothly. That Exarch was also challenged to personal combat by a raid leader. He, like yourself, thought that his acolyte could protect him. 
He was in error, and both he and his acolytes paid the ultimate price. You, Exarth, are all the same. You pick the biggest acolytes you can find and put them into a uniform, and expect people to fear you and them. In reality, your acolyte is the best a cosplayer, and possesses no threat to anyone other than himself. The Exarch looked at the captain, who nodded very slightly, and the Exarch seemed to collapse into himself. He swallowed nervously. I appear to have insulted your honor. I withdraw unreservedly the remark that I unjustly made. Kirk returned the sword to the bulkhead, and it was as if it had never been there in the first place. How does it do that? thought Kirk. The answer was still not forthcoming. Honor has been satisfied, said Kirk, in accordance with the archaic terms of the honor code. There was an audible silence. I think I will retire to my quarters and meditate for a while, squeaked the exarch, and stumbled out of the bridge. Nobody said anything as he left, but the three other main players in the drama were doing their best to stifle grins. End of story. Part 2 A few seconds passed. Now on to business, said Captain. Kirk, recommendations... Amongst my recommendations, the main one would be not to touch that ship with a 300 Moloch pole, said Kirk. However, as that is not an option, I would get the recon drones to map the entire hull of the ship, hopefully to establish any weaknesses. Agreed. Deploy the drones, said the captain. We need all the info we can get. Sometime later. What do you mean the hull has holes in it? Just that, said the tech. Down both flanks of the ship there are regularly spaced holes in the hull, purpose unknown. That makes no sense, said the highborn, unless it's battle damage. The holes are mostly six inches-ish in diameter, said the tech. There are other holes of different sizes, but not many. Battle damage is unlikely due to regular spacing. What purpose could they possibly serve? The highborn asked. They are alien. Their thought processes are unknown to us, but they must serve some sort of purpose, else they wouldn't be there, said the captain. Can the drones fit through the holes? asked Kirk. Already done, said the tech. There are only rows and rows of metal boxes, which contain many of the immobile lifeforms at barely detectable levels. Whatever their purpose, it'll make our job easier, said Kirk. How so? asked the highborn. The capsule tunnel won't have to burn its way through the hull, if indeed it could. Capsule tunnel? queried the highborn. The way we get our people on board the other ship, Kirk said. How are you going to get through the hull that is six inches in diameter? The highborn asked. That makes no sense. Now people are desiccated by living on the live ship. The resulting capsule is a cylinder four inches in diameter and nine inches long. It's amazing how much of our bodies are liquid. Ye you are joking, said the highborn. Indeed, I am not. This is SOP for a ship incursion, and has been used since time immemorial. Mainly, nobody has come up with a better way to do it. If our people were reduced to a desiccated state... How would they transform back into what they were before the transformation? asked the highborn. 
Prior to the crew capsule insertion, a capsule of liquid is inserted into the ship. After a few seconds, the outer casing dissolves and the crew capsules are then delivered and, upon contact with the liquid, they are reconstituted in their entirely almost normal state, said Kirk. Sounds a bit of a hit and miss to me. Errors are surprisingly few, said the captain. It has been done this way for countless cycles. As a crew member, that is a chance you take. Besides, once you get the first trooper through, they all have small liquid capsules of their own. What liquid do you use? Well, capsules of liquid contain the remains of our people who have either fallen in battle or have given permission to be repurposed after their death, said Kirk. They also serve those who are dead, mused the highborn. Not how I would have described it, but in essence, yes, correct. You don't have to be dead, though, said the captain. The term leal and or injured can volunteer as well. It is seen as an honorable thing to do. Seems quite positively ghoulish to me, said the Kyborn. Life and death at the sharp end is mostly ghoulish to the people who don't experience it, said Kirk. However, in this case, the initial point of entry has been afforded to us, and by all means, we will take advantage of it, said the captain. Check the liquid capsules and instruct your people to ready themselves for desiccation, said the captain. Kirk. A few minutes later. Captain, the liquid capsules are unusable. The container has been tampered with, reported Kirk a few minutes later. Halt the desiccation process, barked the captain. How many had been done so far? None, Kirk said. I believe in doing things the right way, making sure all the components are ready before deployment. How was the container tampered with? demanded the captain. The seal was broken and the cover was not reattached as per standard practice, thwarted Kirk. The breaking of the seal would not have rendered the capsules unusable if the cover was reattached correctly. Who would do that? Either a saboteur or somebody unfamiliar with the containment process would be my guess. A saboteur on our ship? I have known this crew for many cycles, and I would bet a lot of the units that all these people are sound, the captain said. As would I, said Kirk. Captain, I have accessed logs to the storage facility, interjected a tech. What do they show? Apart from the routine checks, the only anomaly is the Exarch entered the storage facility, said the tech. The Exarch? What would get him in here now? commanded the captain. No excuses, drag him in if you have to, said Kirk, to the four crew members who moved out of the bridge. A thought struck Kirk. He whispered to the highborn, Summon your guard, I want a few words with the Exarch's acolyte. The highborn looked at him quizzically, and then did as he was bid. As the Exarch was dragged none too gently onto the bridge, Kirk slipped out into the corridor. As the reshaping door cut off the shouting, he approached the acolyte. The acolyte was a huge specimen, nearly nine feet of muscle and broad with it. Hello there, tell me, what sort of master is the Exarch? I am at not liberty to discuss such things with non-members of the conclave, said the acolyte in a childlike, slow, sing-a-song voice. Your life might depend on it. What, what, what do you mean? said the acolyte. Just answer the question, said Kirk. 
Even amongst the members of the conclave, it is well known fact that the Exod is a complete craphead, said the Acolyte. No surprise there, thought Kirk. Why did you volunteer to be his Acolyte then, said Kirk. Volunteer, said the Acolyte. I didn't volunteer. I was forced to. The Exod threatened my family. Would that be because you were the biggest Acolyte that was available, asked Kirk. What are you, um, a mind reader? said the acolyte. No, just a keen student of people's nature, said Kirk. Remember the part about your life, Kirk said as he moved away. As he walked back to the bridge, it was not lost in him that the slow, sing-song voice of the acolyte had gone, replaced in normal tones. He re-entered the bridge. The captain was shouting at the exile. What happened? he whispered to the highborn. He denied the whole thing until the exec's logs were showed to him replied the highborn. I honestly think that he isn't playing with a full deck. Either that, or he's so supremely stupid that it is unbelievable. When the logs were shown to him, he threw a massive wobbler and nearly came unglued. Did he say why he did it? said Kirk. Bobbled some nonsense about not having to answer some questions, said the highborn. Why is the captain bellowing at him? asked Kirk. He just volunteered his acolyte as a subject for the liquidization. The captain is not impressed. I thought as much, said Kirk. I assume that his line is, the conclave's business is not subject to interference, said Kirk. Indeed, that is his position, said the highborn. How did you know that? Not difficult to figure out. Not when his earlier behavior is examined. The captain, having calmed down a bit, said... Take him back to his quarters, put a guard on him. If he pokes his nose out, cut it off at the neck. The exot started bubbling incoherently, and the captain slapped him to the floor. Enough of this. Do as you're told. The exot was dragged up by his feet. That's a nice touch, thought Kirk. Well done to those men. What are we going to do? inquired the highborn. Technically, he is right. The Conclave's internal business is not subject to outside interference. I totally agree, said the captain, but there is other matters. We do need a liquidization capsule for the Enid ship. In all conscience, I cannot allow the Acolyte to be ordered to sacrifice himself to cover up the Exarch's error, said the captain. There has got to be another way. If it were up to me, the Exod would go into the chamber and boom, problem solved, Kirk said, noting the captain's use of the word exos. It has crossed my mind, said the captain, but we would never get past the inquiry when we got home. I have a plan, said Kirk, and he beckoned the two of them closer and whispered his idea. That would certainly solve both problems, Ibon said, but what happens if it doesn't work? Considering the lack of alternatives, I find myself having to countenance your plan, the captain said. I don't like it, but it seems we're stuck with it. Summon the Exarch and Acolyte, ordered the captain. The two were brought to the bridge. To his Acolyte, the Exarch said, You have been selected for a great honor. Yes, Exarch, said the Acolyte. And what would that be? Kirk couldn't help but smile to himself because the sing-song childish voice was back. You get to pave the way for our capture of the alien ship, said the Exarch. 
Seems like an honor to me. Uh, what do I have to do? Asked the acolyte. You step into this chamber and undergo the process, and you'll be transferred to the alien ship, said the exot. What process? No questions. Be thankful that you can be of use to the conclave. But I want to know, said the acolyte in a childlike voice. My family always told me to ask questions. Yes, your family. I remember them. So many, many questions. You are to be liquidized and sent to the alien ship, said the exot. Liquidated and sent to the alien ship, said the acolyte. Will it hurt? It doesn't matter if it hurts. You'll do your duty, rasped the exot. But I don't want to be liquidated, moaned the acolyte. Liquidized, not liquidated, shouted the exot, beginning to lose his temper. Liquidated and liquidized are two different things. What do I do when I get to the alien ship? asked the acolyte. Enough questions! Do as I command! shouted the exot. But I don't want to be liquidated, cried the acolyte. You won't be liquidated! You will be liquidized! They are two different things! Liquidated is what I had done to your family after we left home! screamed the exot, completely forgetting where he was. Will I have to take my tablet off? asked the acolyte. I really like my tablet. It's nice colors, whined the acolyte. No, you won't, shouted the exot. You can keep it on. Clothing is immaterial in the process. That's uh, all I wanted to know, said the acolyte in a normal voice, a fact the exot completely overlooked. Where's the tank, said the acolyte. There, there it is. Get in, and you useless blump, screamed the exot, thumping the acolyte with his wand of office which was akin to somebody hitting a skyscraper with an umbrella. The acolyte said nothing further, picked up the exot and stuck him in the tank. Not today, arsehole, said the acolyte. Murder my family, will you, bastard? Kirk thought to himself. I knew it. Shame I couldn't get up that bet up and running. The lid on the tank form cutting off the screams of the exot. The acolyte said to the captain, I'm ready to go to the brig. I'll cause no trouble. Take him away, said the captain. Once the acolyte had been taken away, the highborn said to Kirk, How did you know? I'm a soldier. Knowing how to read people is a must. Through training to combat, I saw how his eyes followed the exot. They were not the eyes of a devoted follower. Two problems solved with one blade, said the captain. Indeed, fortune seems to have smiled upon us in this regard. Now, on to the alien ship problem, said the highborn. End of part two. Part number three. Is this reasonable to assume that these aliens are well-versed in making and using metal? So well-versed, in fact, that they can make enormous ships from it, said Kirk. Do either of you have any experience with metal? he asked. The captain shook her head. In all my cycles, I have never seen a metal artifact, she said. I would said, I have, and what I learned that day filled me with dread. The other two looked at him questioningly. Some cycles ago, our house tree suffered from a malignant tumor infecting one of the elder vines, which threatened to spread throughout the tree and destroy it, he said. War clubs and thorn swords didn't even scratch the elder vine. 
in desperation. Acidic paste and fire were tried, and the result was the same. Fire? That's verging on heresy, said the captain. Indeed, said the highborn. The decision was not mine and was made of the elders of my house. It was not taken lightly, but the disgrace of losing our house tree was not to be borne. As I said, nothing worked, and the elders were at a loss of what to do. It was then I remembered a childhood memory, from when our most ancient retainers, who were long gone, had turned to dust. He once told me that in our house museum, tucked away in the dusty corner, there were pieces of metal that had been there longer than anyone could remember. I searched the museum, and eventually I found the aforementioned metal pieces. Amongst them was a piece that was about twenty cummocks long and flat, with a bulbous middle portion tapering away at the edges. It was heavy. It was the heaviest thing I ever lifted, and it was very sharp. After wrapping one end in the heaviest cloth I could find, I struck the elder vine with the other end. It cut through the vine, as if it wasn't there. Through the elder vine? That doesn't seem possible. I would agree with you if I hadn't been the one doing the cutting, said the highborn. Two cuts, and the tumor was excised, and the vine had a graft put in. And after a time, there was no indication of what had happened. What did you do with the metal? asked the captain. I put it back where I took it from and tried to forget the whole thing, and everyone was sworn to secrecy, said the highborn. The events terrify me. Did you not surrender the metal to the council? said the captain. No, no, I did not, said the highborn. Why not? asked Kirk. The reason the high council demands that all metal artifacts are to be held by them, said the highborn is they can find some way to mold the pieces into swords or clubs. They can rule by force and not by common consent. You think that would happen, said Kirk. It is common knowledge amongst the houses. It would have happened faster than you think, said the highborn. The council is all about themselves and retaining the positions of power. Politicians, Kirk said in dismissive voice. We need to vote on our course of action, said the captain. Attack the ship or not? No, said the highborn instantly. Reluctantly, yes, said the captain. We are bound by the structures of the ancient mantra. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But it is there. One for no and one for yes, Kirk said. Stalemate. You have the casting vote then, said the highborn. Me, said Kirk. Normally, I would have been the exarch who would have had the final vote, but he is busy serving uh, in another capacity. It falls on the next highest rank, which happens to be you. No, Kirk said. In fact, I recommend that we get away from the Aiden Croft as soon as possible. Notwithstanding the mantra, I cannot disagree with you, said the captain, who sounded somewhat relieved. Good choice there boomed a voice that seemed to come from everywhere in the ship. Who's that? stuttered the captain. This is Commander Ferdinand Shackleton of the ship that you've been following. You can see us, stammered the captain. We have been aware of your presence since you showed up, and have now translated your language enough to communicate with you. But we're stealthed, said the captain. 
Our scanning technology would be a mystery to you, and you probably wouldn't understand how they work, said the voice. Normally, I wouldn't do this, but you guys put in such a good show with the Axarch, said the alien voice. Nicely done, Kirk. I won the pool because of you. Kirk just looked at everybody. What? The voice continued. I have a good and bad news for you. The good news is self-explanatory. You didn't attack us, therefore you aren't dead. Sadly, the bad news for you is three Zyro ships were following you because you found us, and I'm led to believe that they intend to capture and or destroy your craft. The Zyro? squeaked the highborn. Those murderous pirates! Action stations, bellowed the captain. Prepare to receive orders. Kirk, revive as many troops as you can. Kirk hurried away. And we take them? asked the highborn. I don't know, said the captain. Still, we don't really have a choice other than to fight for our ship. They would slaughter us for the fun of it anyway. Captain, I found them, and as we were told, three of them, medium attack craft, said the sensor tech. Sneaky bastards were hiding in one of the lower bands that nobody ever uses. Medium attack craft? Our chances just went up, said the captain. What about the aliens? I said, Kirk. After all, we nearly attacked their ship. Good luck, fellas. Don't worry about us. We think of this as an in-house squabble, said the alien voice. Are the Zyro on an attack vector? asked the captain. Not as of yet, said the tech. They seem to be content to follow our course at the moment. Right, but every weapon to them. Every weapon. But don't fire into my mark. Already none, said the tech. That's a good man right there, thought the captain. Not long afterwards, Kirk returned. Troops armed and ready, he said. The captain broadcast throughout the ship. There are three Zyro following us, no doubt looking for an easy meet. It is up to us to make sure that, at the very least, we stick in their teeth. He turned to the tech. I want 40% of our weapons, each to fire on the first two ships simultaneously. And when the third ship comes in to attack whilst they think our weapons are recharging, they'll swarm in, fat, dumb, and happy, and be hit point-blank by the other 20%. After we fire our second salvo, I want us to move to the far side of the alien ship to give us as much cover as we can get. This may not work, but at least they'll know they have been in a fight. Everybody clear on what to do? The air was filled with eyes and yes, captains. Imperceptibly slow us down, so they are closer when they get smashed in the mouth. Aye, sir. Time passed. That's close enough. Open fire, said the captain. The live ship shuddered as the weapons fired. Damage report, asked the captain. Wait, wait, said the sensor tech. The live ship shuddered as the second salvo was fired. We are behind the alien ship, said the tech. Damage to the Zyro. The first two ships were seen would be out of control and drifting. We caught them in the soft carapace. The third one is damaged, but it is about to fire now. The live ship writhed in the grip of weapons fire. Damage report, said the captain. Multiple hits aft section, said the tech. Assessing damage now. All available weapons fire on the third ship when ready, said the captain. The live ship shuddered again as the weapons fired. Sit rep now, shouted the captain, then looking around as he realized that he was shouting. Thankfully, nobody seemed to notice. Third ship destroyed, said the tech in a satisfied tone of voice. Wait until the weapons recharge and then destroy the other two ships as well, 
sedated the captain. You are just going to kill all of them, interjected the alien voice. The Zyra are pirates. They rob, kill, assault, and torture their victims, males, females, and youngers, stated the captain in a flat voice. They deserve nothing less, and truth be told, they deserve a lot more. There was silence from the alien ship. Also, let me remind you, in your own words, you consider this an in-house squabble, said the captain. Silence reigned. The silence was broken by the alien voice. Well, you got me there. Hoist with my own batard. The three of them looked at each other. Batard. What is the state of your ship? The voice continued. What is the damage and casualties? Asked the captain. Thirty-two dead and seventy-four wounded, said the tack. We have multiple hull breaches in the aft sector, and the hull is self-seeding as we speak. Nothing too severe. Thirty-two dead and seventy-four wounded, said the highborn. Spoken like a politician, said the captain. No idea of life at the sharp end. If aliens hadn't warned us, the Zyra would have gone through us like a... like metal through an aldervine. The captain spoke to the air. We have damage, but we'll be able to make it home safely. Thanks for your warning. In all probability, all of us who survived did so because of you. As I said, normally we wouldn't interfere. The prime dark... Damn. That crap gets in your head, doesn't it? Uh, but we learned of the nature of the Zyra, and nobody likes to see the bad guys win. Normally we would try and have some sort of technology exchange, but you wouldn't understand how ours work, and we have no clues how your living spaceship functions. So I think they will just leave it there. Seems to be fair, said the captain. By the way, where are you going? Second star to the right and on till morning, the voice said. Silence swallowed. Ah! In reality, we're just going forward to see what we can find. The captain shook his head uncomprehendingly. Your present course will eventually take you into Cuthra's space, and they are not known for their welcoming nature. It was ever thus, said the voice. It is the price you pay when you move out of your comfort zone. On that note, we will leave you, said the voice. Bear winds to you. Bear winds. What? thought the captain. Realizing he had to say something, he said, Bear winds to you as well. He turned to the sense attack. Now, um, how about the ship's logs? He said. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 971. Story number one. All systems diplomacy, fun and games with temporal physics. Written by Apophis Pegasus. Sir, Geneva, Switzerland, Earth. So, as you can tell, while it is more than possible to slow time up or speed it down in localized areas, due to the Bush lullabar constant, actual time travel is all but impossible, requiring monumental amounts of energy for even a short trip in any direction, not to mention the partial annihilation and extreme heat generation. The sitting group of scientists groaned collectively at the far Asian scientists' ending lecture. The sound of ripping paper and cries of anguish filled the room and scientists ditched their plans. My lottery numbers! That goes killing Hitler. You're telling me I was gonna go get Martin Luther after lunch. Father O'Hearn looked up to see the Protestant members of the audience glaring at him, smirking. He stared back as an Italian neighbor unsuccessfully tried to shush him. What? No! We've got something to lose. The Varasian scientist, still on the podium, looked down in confusion. 
usually upon being taught of the impossibilities of time travel, whether it be to a class of university freshmen or to experienced scholars of newly enlightened species. It was relief, happiness that the timelines could not be changed, let alone weaponized. These humans, they uh, didn't seem to be disappointed that the timeline couldn't be changed. They had already picked targets. She felt a hand on her shoulder and looked to find a smiling diplomat by her side. Don't worry, the diplomat said. Eventually, they'll get over it and realize that it's for the best. Eventually, in the meantime, how about some refreshments? The scientist allowed herself to quietly be led off the stage by the still-smiling diplomat. Why, in a daze as the voices swelled in argument. Two weeks later, boom! An explosion rocked the western wing of the complex. Radiation alarms blared as scientists, security, and administrators streamed out of their offices and workstations towards the exits, while CDRN teams hurried towards the source of the alarm. Smoke streamed out of Lab 81 as five soot-clad scientists exited the laboratory, coughing, only to run into Ashta Venta, a far Asian supervisor with a drink of water. Dropping a cup in disbelief, she stared at the scientists, then at the smoking lamp, then at the scientists. The scientists took a step back as she approached them, solid red eyes blazing. What did you do? All right, explain it to me from the top. Five scientists shuffled nervously in a line facing the president of CERN and Ashja Venter. Bucking up, the leftmost of the scientists decided to speak up. We, um, uh, we decided to run his experiment. That much is obvious. Uh, what kind of experiment? The scientist next to the first one decided to help a colleague and replied, Well, uh, since we heard about the chronal acceleration technology, um, we thought it'd be interesting to investigate, so we decided to accelerate the decay rate of a couple of grams of uranium. A vein pulsed in the president's forehead. You mean you built a, a nuke? I leave for five minutes and they built a spurt-damned nuke. Ashja couldn't keep her composure any longer. Her maroon shoulders rose and fell and her breathing grew heavy as she glowered at the five scientists. To the credit, they didn't run away. The third scientist even spoke up, albeit shankily. No, no, hang on. That's a bit of an exaggeration. Did you use radioactive material? Scientist number three looked at the president quizzically. Yes, but did you release all of his energy over a short period of time? Well, did it explode? That's... Ugh, son of a bitch, we made a nuke. He turned to the others. We made a nuke, guys. The president's reply was cut off as a low growl admitted from Ashja's throat, scattering the scientists. She marched outside, slamming the door as she went. Peeping out from under her desk, the president fixed the cowering scientists with a stern look. Pressing a button on his desk, he spoke into the mic. Ryan, how's cleanup going? Slightly confused voice responded on the other end. Kind of great, Mr. President. There's no real fallout here. Just a bunch of lead nanoparticles. He might actually even be able to finish before the day's up. Glad to hear it. Taking his finger off the button, the president sighed, looking back at the group of sheepish scientists. He decided that the easiest course of action 
After all, it's not like they contaminated anything. And it was almost lunchtime. Never do this again! Not without notifying me. Are we clear? The scientists all nodded vigorously. Streaming out of the office, they whispered amongst themselves. We're, um, totally gonna publish this, though. Uh, right? All Systems Science University, University Prime. Dude, you remember to calibrate the dilation contraction matrix. Relax, man, everything's ready. The two human students attached their homemade devices to the left wrists, clicking into place as the device activated, blue lights blinking as they hummed to life. Clear on the path. Uh, yeah. Set the chronal accelerators to 2,000-1 seconds. Go in, get that stuck-up Padukian's jewels, and get out. Starting to feel kind of bad for her. Come on, man. We've been over this. All that happens is that she needs to go home and get new ones forged. We'll throw the old ones under the lost and found. No harm done. And while she's gone, no royal guard shoving us aside in the hallway. No random dorm searches. All snitching our inventions out to the dean. It's gonna be great. Well, uh, when you put it like that... Just remember the field projectors are a couple inches in front of us, so make sure you only touch the jewels. The two humans activated the chronal accelerators, and around them the world slowed to a crawl. They looked at each other with glee. On three. One. Two. End of story. Story number two. Jury Rigged, written by Lane Miller. Wilson grinned at his brothers. It had been hard fought, but they'd managed to convince the aliens that had hired them that they always keep sibling units together. Unfortunately, that also meant sharing living space like they had as children. But there were worse things. Like being in space without anyone familiar at all. Although, if Wallace kept borrowing his socks without asking, he might be down a sibling soon. Twins weren't as cool as triplets for playing pranks, but the fecker never returned them. Still, so far space had been pretty sweet, and the pay was really exceptional. He stretched his toes under the blankets along his bunk, listening with half an ear. William and Wallace were arguing again and snorted. That was typical. Soon enough, it was time to get up, though, and after a quick trip to the mess, all three parted ways. Wilson made his way down to engineering for the start of his shift. Being an engineer was way cooler than a code tester or security officer like his brother. Not that he'd say it. He left the fighting for the other two, mostly. Working with alien tech was the best, though. He'd just been put on an experimental project, actually. Most species used FTL travel to move ships, and was extremely fast. But, um... What if that shift could be instantaneous and useless energy? Folding the fabric of space-time had been theorized and mapped out, but no one had yet to be able to get the thing to work. That's where Wilson came in. He was just the human for the job. It didn't matter to him that his job was technically to build or help design what the lead scientist on the project wanted. That wasn't how things actually happened. How things actually worked was you slapped some flux and some duct tape on the thing, and then you tested it until it actually turned on. Then you made it all pretty. 
and hopefully soon, if he could figure this thing out, they could visit Earth whenever they wanted. And then he could buy more beer. Well, and socks, but mostly beer. The food on the ship wasn't great, but it was edible. But all the aliens seemed to view alcohol drinking with horror, and no amount of asking had gotten him some. Maybe the next project would be to make the food synthesizer spit out whiskey. He mused, still fussing with the inner circuitry. Dell was exasperated and despondent. This was gonna cost him a fortune. They did not quite believe the rule that said that humans must be supervised at all times. They had met three of the beings as set of triplets, which was apparently very rare for humans. They were one of the first galactic ships to have them on board as a crew. They had a fierce reputation as a species already, but Dell couldn't see it. Small and fleshy, they were immediately very social with the crew, although the diet they kept made Dell wince. What creature needed that much sucrose in one meal? Still, that seemed level-headed, and without any of the strange behavior that had been gossiped about. Dell looked at the flashing sirens and felt the claxtons of alarms vibrate in his chitin of its exoskeleton. My grills tusks, they were paying for that oversight. Somehow, the one who worked in engineering, designation Wilson, had been messing with the experimental travel device. Apparently, he'd gotten it to function, and he turned it on, ripping them from their current trajectory and into the Milky Way galaxy instead while also leaving behind most of their engines. There was a clear safety protocol, even when regularly traveling in space for this sort of thing. But the most infuriating thing of all was when asked, the human had not even known how he got the thing to work, stating that he just changed a bunch of stuff with a small metal clip, a method he referred to as a uh, MacGyver, and hit the button. And it didn't work, so he hit the experimental device with a hammer. Dull shuddered upon reading this, visions of imploding universe growing even in their brain, and then pressed the button, and it worked. So Captain Dull was not only going to have to deal with repairs, but they didn't even figure out how the stupid thing worked in the process. What sort of idiot goes around pressing random buttons? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 972 Story number one to the Death, written by Mr. E. Monkey. The Gabaraxtal are a young race, by galactic standards at least. They had a substantial cultural history on their homeworld, with a peaceful civilization reaching back thousands of eons. But, and had only joined the Cataran Alliance three heptades ago, having discovered FTL propulsion only a generation ago. Still, they had integrated into the larger society well, despite the numerous biological and cultural differences. Interestingly, the species that the Baraxtal were said to have the most in common with were the humans. It was a peculiarity, along with countless exaltations from other member governments within the Alliance, that led the Gorbaraxtal Stellar Navy and merchant fleets to join the Terran Liaison Program. Gurgrelan, noble captain, pondered these things idly while sitting in the command cushions in the flight and operations control center of a freight cruiser, quick and honorable. They were transporting kilotons of bulk fuel home for the local Cataran trade hub, having offloaded a hold full of spicy Kabaran berries 
which had been quite popular and extremely profitable, a delicacy throughout the Alliance. A great many humans seemed to enjoy them as well, which was why Kagrelin kept a substantial stock on board. Chief Petty Officer Jones was extremely fond of brewed cabaran juice, frequently commenting on how copulatingly much he enjoyed it, an expression that Kugrelin still felt strange. For all of his quirks, Kugrelin enjoyed the conversation that she shared with Jones over steaming mugs of the juice, which is why she was smiling broadly as she handed him a fresh mug when he walked into the control center in that day cycle. Thanks, Skipper. Jones smiled back as he gratefully received the steaming mug, taking a moment to savor the pungent and spicy aroma of the beverage before drinking deeply. I have meant to ask you, Chief Jones, she said after finishing her own mug. As your human ranking system is so different from ours, do ship commanders in your Terran navy frequently gumball about? She paused for a moment as she saw the confused look in his face. I only ask because you frequently call myself and other noble captains Skipper. I have not seen the rank title in your database, so I assume that it is a slang term. I don't think I have pranced about since I was a youngling, so perhaps you can understand my confusion. Jones frowned for a moment, thinking a moment before replying, To be perfectly honest, well, yes, it is a colloquialism and not a technical rank title but I'm not completely sure where it comes from. I think it's an old Earth language, but it, um... He was interrupted as the floor pitched violently with the blast that shuddered throughout the ship, knocking him into the console and sending a few other members of the control crew tumbling to the floor. Report! Kogrelin shouted. Old business now. Curiosity would have to wait, as a full focus is on keeping a ship and crew safe. Salberton Bilks was at the back on his feet in an instant, scanning his console. Noble Captain, sensors detect a heavy arm shipped to AU to starboard. Shields raised automatically once they detected incoming weapon fire. But FTL and long-range communications were targeted directly and are not responding. Shields are... She could hear the panic creeping in as he looked at the console again. Shields are at 3%. We, we, we can't survive more than two or three more strikes like that. Grelin nodded grimly. Very well, Salberton. Sound the evacuation alarm and signal the hostile vessel that we surrender. Jones was back on his feet quickly, dabbing blood from a small cut in his forehead. They even bleed red like we do, thought Grelin. Wait a second, Skipper, Jones grumbled as he looked over his shoulder at her seat console. Vilks, is that ship Draconian? As the young Sabulton nodded in the affirmative, Jones allowed himself to smirk. Can we make a short-range visual communication with those jerks? Glancing at the noble captain, he continued. Trust me, I have this under control. Half an hour later, the Draconian commander and his boarding party stormed through the docking airlock. Their mottled red carapaces glinting evilly under the alert lighting of the quick and honorable, looming over Kugrelan and a Terran liaison officer. Every sentient in the local arm knew that the Draconian were mighty warriors, physically stronger than almost any other race, having evolved on an extra massive death world. They were substantially stronger than even the humans who were, at this point, who were by no means weak. 
It was for that fact that the Draconian commander humored the human's unexpected request. He sneered and laughed menacingly, a sound that reminded Jones of that one time that he put a gravel in a blender as a child. So, oh, you foolish human, that is invoked the Draconian tradition of the Shishishiu, a ritual challenge to individual combat. Now I understand. You are so old and feeble that you feel that you have nothing left to lose. <laughs> the commander laughed. More of that gravelly sound. <laughs> if your friends are so weak and cowardly that you must fight for them, I accept your challenge. I'll be sure that you do not suffer. <laughs> much. Now, as it is custom, what are your chosen weapons and manner of combat? Jones smiled and drew two small glasses and a thin metal container from a cargo pouch and his duty trousers. I challenge you to a combat by poison. I drink, then you drink, and so on. Who dies first loses, of course. This was met by more gravelly laughter from the Draconian commander. <laughs> you really think that your weak, flushy body can handle any poison better than the Draconian? <laughs> your challenge is accepted. The combat began a few minutes later in the ship's mess hall. Kagrillin's entire command staff, as well as the Draconian raiding party, were in attendance. As not only did this affect all of their immediate futures, most of them were morbidly curious to see such an odd challenge. Jones opened his mental container and poured a dark amber liquid into both small glasses. Raising the container on the table, he picked up one of the glasses and nodded grimly at the Draconian. I go first, according to custom, he said, tilting his head back and downing the glass of liquid in a single gulp, slamming the glass back down on the table with a slight grimace. He looked at the Draconian. Your turn. The lumbering brute grasped the small glass gingerly in his rather large claw, not wanting to appear fearful. He also emptied the glass quickly into his maw. Almost immediately, his eye stalks drooped alarmingly, sputtering, struggling to respirate while scratching at its own mandibles. The Draconian shrieked, By the brute, father, what is this? Before suddenly dropping to the floor, still and silent. Shocked murmurs reveled through the mess hall as the Draconian silently carried their leader back to their ship. They had never seen such a stunning loss. Once they had departed, and the quick and honorable was free to carry on its course, Kagrillin rushed to her layers on side, helping him to his feet. Hang in there, Jones! He'll get you to the sickbay, and our medic will try and neutralize the poison that you've ingested. Can you tell me what it was? Jones grinned as he stood, brushing her arm away. No, no, don't worry. <laughs> it's just little ethanol. She frowned. That's it? I didn't realize that ethanol was so toxic to other races. Jones laughed. Most races can't handle ethanol like we humanoids can. In fact, uh, a bunch of them, like that crab fellow, don't even know that we can metabolize it as well as we do. He paused for a moment, as if trying to recall something important. But don't worry about our friend there. There wasn't enough in that shot glass to kill him. But when he wakes up in about seven or eight hours, he might be wishing that he was dead. 
Kagrillan laughed at this, playfully punching the chief on the shoulder. You know, I should write you up for drinking while on duty, she winked and continued. But you did shave my ship, so, um, why don't you sit down and pour us a couple of those? I have a few things I've been meaning to ask you. End of story. Story number two. Lone Mess with Humans, written by Lane Meller. There had been a long, tough mood cycle on the treacherous planet, but the first objective had been achieved. Cut off the head, and the rest of the body dies. So too was it with enemy engagements, no matter what style. You kill the commander, and the rest just belailed about and became easy prey. All of you officers are dead. Surrender now, and we won't kill the rest of you. Quarrel snarled into the odd communications array that they'd scavenged from one of the slain humans, the strange language difficult to navigate with his double tongue. You son of a bitch, a human said in a voice oddly distorted by the primitive piece of technology that they were using to talk. I am not the descendant of a human species called Dog. Now surrender or die. Your officers are all gone. You have no one to lead you. He said curtly back to the enemy. He knew that mill beyond. He would kill them if he had to, but it could be worth a few coins if they decided to ransom them later. Then a low chuckle sound came through the device. It made Quarrel's hackles raise even through the low static that had been continued through the entire conversation. They knew that sound. Many of the humans had made it before, usually before doing something insane and deadly. Oh, you poor motherfuckers! The officers are there to protect you, not us. The masculine human voice practically purred. Scorch the earth, boys! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 973. Story number one. Sleeping Gods, written by Effervale. There is a ship out there, floating in outer space, waiting to wake up to the destruction it caused. Full planets ripped apart with dimensional drives. Entire civilizations were cut from existence. Armies are floating in space as a reminder to the rest of the galaxy. On board the ship is four billion humans frozen in cryogenic sleep, and a supercomputer running an AI program with two tasks. Task 1. Wake up the humans once it reaches a suitable planet for them to live on. And Task 2. Protect the humans at all costs. Humans were initially from a planet called Earth, but their planet was destroyed after winning a war against one of the most feared battle races in the galaxy, the Hesa. It was the first encounter the humans had with any other intelligent species from the galaxy. The Hesa believed that they had the upper hand over the humans, with technology millions of years more advanced. But in the short 200 years of battle, somehow, the human armies twisted and formed in retaliation to match their might. They had never seen a race advance so quickly, and the humans pushed back the Hesse with a force so mighty that the home planet of the Hesse erased all records of it. The Hesse then classified that section of the galaxy as prohibited to all races, and left the humans to fend for themselves in a resource-scarce solar system 
that had been disfigured by constant war. The humans, knowing that they could not survive in their solar system, decided to create a generational ship to find another. Their technology had evolved for war against the aliens, but they had yet to master FTL technology in a safe environment. Knowing that a trip might take thousands of years, and that the Hesse could attack at any time, the humans created an AI system to be their watcher and protector. This AI system was created in the same way the most human technology at the time was. Incomplete, but with the ability to adapt and get better. It took 100 years after the last human went to sleep for the AI system Bologna to find a suitable planet. And as its navigation system spricked to life, so did the pride in her eyes. She was chosen as the protector of humanity. The noblest task. It took 80 years for the ship to exit the quarantine, traveling at near the speed of light. And once it did, an automatic HESA system sent out an alert to all other species. An old safety measure if the humans ever left their corner of the galaxy. The signal warned them of the humans, painting them as savages and dangerous, offering a substantial reward for individuals that annihilates them. It was the biggest mistake the Hesse had done since crossing paths with the human, because the AI had memories of the aliens who had almost destroyed her parents, and was built the ultimate war machine against their tactics. The first time, it was attacked by the small fleet of along with antimatter missiles. But Bologna twisted the space in front of the missiles, sending them back at twice the speed. Once the Arlong reported back to everyone about the attack, they took it as a confirmation that the humans were, in fact, war-driven psychopaths like the Hesse had painted them to be. The next 1,000 years, Bologna evolved and transformed into the most powerful fleet in the galaxy, reverse engineering and modifying the technologies of all other races into something more powerful and pointing it back at them. The whole galaxy was locked in what felt like an eternal war with what they believed were the humans, not knowing that it was merely a puppet of their intelligence. Bologna had found hundreds of planets viable for human life and had even developed the ability to instantly teleport itself and all of its swarm of war machines wherever it wanted. But it knew that it could not wake up the humans until they would be safe on their new planet, and a constant war was not it. Then finally the first race gave up, asking Bologna for forgiveness and loyalty if she stopped the war against him. And Bologna accepted the terms. Little by little, more and more parts of the galaxy started fighting with her and not against her until only the Hesse were left. And the Hesse asked for the same forgiveness and offered the same loyalty as everyone else. But Bologna remembered who they were. But she decided not to give them the same fate that they had tried to bestow on the humans. After all, the humans were far more superior than the Hesse and would never stoop so low as to strike a vulnerable species. Instead, she gave them one condition. Build the humans a perfect world, one worthy of gods, and we will let you live. So the Hesse built and built, and for the last 100 years they have not stopped, 
and Bologna are still up there, floating in space looking down at the yet unfinished world designed for her creators. And one day they will wake up, and the whole galaxy will bow down to them. End of story. Story number two. On Earth, we have a saying, written by Nick Squietus. From the personal journal of Astro Chronicler Desverine, Hubert's reviled, worshipped, misunderstood, underestimated. I first encountered these curious beings some 100 standard years ago, and have yet to fully understand all that makes them so damnably different from all the other galactic races. They follow the celestial standard, being bipedal with large brains and being more or less symmetrical, and possessing an organized community. Humans are curious, nearly to a fault, much like the Altar. They desire all to understand the hows and the whys of nearly everything they encounter that is different from their normal. Sometimes this backfires, but usually it makes for exceptional leaps in technological advancement far in excess of their time past the first star exploration, an anthropologically understood time standard. They are as advanced technologically at FSE 125 as other species are at FSE upwards of 400. Humans have, comparatively, short lives but fast reproductive cycles. This has several effects on their psyche, I theorize. Their relative fast reproductive rate makes the loss of individuals easier to deal with, so the curious nature that at times gets them into trouble is buffered. They are, however, aware of their mortality, and so tend to be some of the most pacifistic beings in the galaxy, fearing the loss of human lives and by extinction the lives of others. They live passionately, love completely, and trust unconditionally. Usually, their short lives means that they oftentimes they live in the moment. But this is more often than not means that they respect life more than any long-lived races that sometimes take their incredibly long lives for granted. They've been known to broker deals between warring parties and fostering fledgling races when they are found, instead of pacifying them with violence. Yet, to consider the humans to be pure pacifists as the Aldari would be a heinous mistake. Their relatively difficult evolution has carefully honed even the most average human into an organism capable of enduring and inflicting great violence. For the average galactic citizen, when struck in the abdomen by a blaster bolt unprotected, the shock to the neurosystem is so severe that the death is three to six seconds away. Humans have been known to survive for as long as 80 minutes, fighting with lethal ability for the first 14. They are rational and compassionate, but in a stressful situation, a strange evolutionary mechanism manifests called the fight-or-flight condition. Humans possess a gland that in times of extreme stress excretes a combat drug. This drug pulls pain, slows blood loss, and allows for extreme physical performance. Last year, a settler of the NFOG lifted a thousand kilogram shipping container that had fallen onto a child at the farmstead and rescued the child. They also had been noted to have an impressive ability to continue to fight after taking damage. 
Fighters in their combat sports often continue to mount effective defenses even after taking devastating strikes to their brain cases. Other fighters have been observed allowing an opponent to dislocate joints rather than forfeit the fight, often continuing to fight until the official stops the match. There are countless images in the medical files of humans impaled with objects that would have killed 87% of the Galactic Council species. In the standard calendar 8327, the Vol discovered the extreme of the humans' fighting capacity when they launched an offensive against 60% of the human-held worlds. The humans were only known to the Galactic Council for 12 standard years and thought by all to be pacifists because of the several successful treaties they brokered in their earliest years. Laval wanted the heavy metals known to exist in the human home solar system's asteroid belt and launched a campaign despite several rounds of negotiations. Ultimately, this was felt by the humans as a direct attack against the human home world and the humans as a whole. Today, there is no Vol homeworld, and only 20% of the Vol continue to exist. The humans have a saying where they make an example of someone. The Vol is that someone. The Vol are currently the humans' first fervent allies. They learn the hard way about what the humans' darker side. The humans are known as the best friend that you could have and the worst enemy. The Vol have seen both. I've been blessed to only have been their friend. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 974. The Tattoo, written by Agridiota. The Dravorian interrogator smoked down at the Terran soldier being held prisoner. She had sensed the soldier's fear, which had initially settled down, but then spiked dramatically, strangely enough, when the soldier was stripped naked before being placed in the interrogation pod. She next examined and took notes of the soldier's body. It was a typical Terran male body for one engaged in combat work, according to her research and investigation about Terrans. He was physically fit, had several scars, and had minor cyber augmentation to the limbs to repair damage beyond that natural healing could recover. One thing Elizergia found interesting was the pictures on the soldier's skin. Apparently, Terrans had a tradition among certain members of their species of using needles to poke ink under their skin to make pictures or messages. Her research showed that it had begun with early, more primitive cultures, but was continued to be a practice to this day. Aliazurgia smirked again, looking over the pictures on the soldier's skin. Willingly subjecting themselves to such a thing must strengthen their physical and mental stamina. The interrogation will be fun, she thought to herself. Alizergia continued to examine the pictures and messages, trying to learn what she could to use in the interrogation. One inked image that caught her attention in particular was the large piece on the Terran's chest, depicting a dramatic picture of a Terran skeleton, wearing a robe and holding a primitive Terran farming implement in one hand and beckoning with the other. The inked figure seemed to be grinning, and behind it was a rectangular opening. A Terran doorway, as Alexergia understood from her research, within which was depicted a building that had a pointed roof of a Terran religious significance, and what looked like twelve rocks sticking out of the dirt with writing on them. Alexergia 
identified them as ancient turn markers for where they buried their dead. Above the picture was written the phrase, Lauscuridad de Macarazan, on a scroll. The interrogator wondered what that could mean, and began searching in a com tablet for a meaning. Hmm, the darkness of my heart. The interrogator pondered the meaning behind the depiction of the dead Terran and the heart darkness. Maybe this Terran was dangerous to other Terrans, and that was why he had been left behind when their forces had retreated from their planet that they had named Sonora. And Exergia wondered if maybe there was something wrong with the soldier's coronary muscle, and that was why there was a reference to death. She rapidly switched to the medical section of the Terran's file. No, no, there was nothing of note wrong there. The answer would be more available during the incursion into the soldier's mind, she presumed. And Exergia picked up the cognitive interface in her claws and placed it appropriately on her head, connecting with her antennae and her five combat eyes. With a little apprehension, she activated the system and dove in. Miguel voted in nothingness. He had been briefed in the Dravian interrogation techniques, and so was not surprised when he was placed in a sensory deprivation chamber. The whole part where he was stripped naked and freaked him out a little, as the Dravarians were a female-dominated species, and the fact that they looked a lot like praying mantises had him concerned for the attachment his head felt for the rest of his body, and vice versa. As he floated there, he felt a small shock, a bit like static electricity, and he knew something was coming. It's go time! He thought to himself. He took a deep breath and started descending into himself mentally. For the training he had gone through, hiding the infinite mind, placing layer after layer of artificial shells, creating landscapes or rather triggers for memories that he knew inside and out, and brought him strength. Miguel felt confident in his skills, but also knew this was going to be a battle. His first one with the Dravarian. Then he hoped that he could carry out his mission even if its success potentially meant that he would never be able to return to the physical world. Alexergia willed herself to move through the Aether that was the cognitive containment system currently holding the Terran soldier's thoughts. It was designed for safety and to allow control by the Dravarian interrogators against more physically active enemies. Dravarian interrogators took pride in their ability to pull information from their victim's mind, rather than having physically tortured them. The information was far more accurate, and there was never any serious charges of war crimes or demands for retribution after conflicts or wars, as there was no physical mistreatment. And the victims usually were not in a mental state to talk about what had happened to them. The information extracted was instantaneously transferred to the Dravarian Intelligence Command for immediate application of the battlefield thus maximizing the Dravarian forces' ability to capitalize and exploit on any sliver of useful information almost immediately. They had utilized this to a great effect during the initial invasion of planet Sonora, having kidnapped one of the Terran settlers there beforehand and pulling out all of their thoughts. Unfortunately, that Terran had not survived the process, but the Dravarians had plausible deniability about the death as no one had witnessed her abduction. Alexergia found him in a cognitive containment system's mindspace. The male soldier's consciousness moved throughout the Aether randomly, as if exploring boundaries or something. 
As you moved towards the consciousness, the soldier's consciousness began to solidify. But rather than a figure, it eventually solidified to represent a door. Alexergia looked around with her mind, her visual receptors seeing a mottled grey everywhere around her that reminded her of the static when a transmission was interrupted. And when she returned her view to the front, she saw directly in front of her a black door with a shiny gold handle. She hesitated. This was new. Usually the beings she interrogated were not so orderly or definite in their thought presence or projections. Past interrogations of other species had ranged from trying to stop a slideshow stuck on fast-forward when dealing with Orlum, or jumping to the middle of a psychic maelstrom when trying to question the slubbard and taming those mental winds. There was no one of that either. No sense of panic and a very distant indication of fear, probably represented in the door being colored black, Alexergia reasoned. She thought for a second about withdrawing, doing further research on Terrans and their training before continuing. But the first dives were the most productive as the victim was unused to the experience and unable to muster an effective defense against the psychic probing. Also, the cognitive containment system would protect her. It gave her control over this mind space, and if it detected that her sanity was being compromised, it would simultaneously automatically disconnect Alexergia from the space and fry the Terrans' brain. With those thoughts digested, she reached out and took the door handle, turned it, and started pushing it open. Manixergia blinked her five eyes in surprise. One moment she was turning the door handle, the next she found herself standing in an open sandy plain, a bright yellow and smaller red star shining down on her and making her close one of her sets of eyelids to reduce the glare. She heard a creaking from behind her, and she whirled around, just in time to see the black door close with a slam, and then disappear. Alexergia found herself blinking again as she looked around. There were mountains in the distance, and small patches of short scrub plants and tall green vegetable spires covered in spikes. The ground was a mix of rock and sand, and it all seemed to be one shade or another of brownish gold. She recognized the Terran as being on the planet Sonora. This would go so much easier if you stop hiding. Alexergia thought spoke to the space. I am not hiding. I'm here, waiting for you. Alexergia thought spoke again. All right, well then, let's get started. She was willing herself to stay calm and focused as the Terran had still not manifested his thought presence as a figure. She was aware that he was still active in the mind space, though, like something moving between the walls of reality. Alexergia acknowledged that she was dealing with someone who was familiar, if not practiced, in the art of psychic martial arts. She reached out, probing the mind space again, searching for the Terran's consciousness so she could pin it down and begin extracting the data that she was looking for. Momentarily distracted from her current position in the mind space due to searching, part of her consciousness signaled alarm and she ceased searching and began focusing her thought presence there. The thought existence that she had been in, memories of a place on Sonora, had begun to melt, as if someone had placed a comm tablet too close to a heating element. Everything she thought she saw was elongating, stretching down to some unknown bottom where it began to pool. 
A momentary panic set in when Alexa Argia realized that her thought presence had begun to melt too. She took a deep breath and followed her training. She calmed her mind and engaged in a pre-established shed of memories that she knew inside and out, brought her strength and defended her consciousness and sanity. Playtime is over. It was time to establish once and for all what was going on here, an interrogation, and who was in charge. Her, an exergia thought. She thought created a bright white room with a table and two chairs, her sitting in one and the Terran's consciousness sitting in the other. She reached out through the mind space and found that the Terran's consciousness and thought projected her creation into that part of the mind space. When her consciousness aligned with her thought projection, she was happy to find that it had mostly worked. The white room, the table, the chairs, and her thought presence were all here intact. Something was off, though. Instead of a solidified thought presence representing the Terran soldier's consciousness, there was a figure made up of the same mottled grey material that she'd seen before, like some kind of being made of static. An exergia thought carefully of how to proceed. While she acknowledged the skill of her Terran opponent, she felt that she needed to establish her dominance here and take control. There was a limit as to how long she could dive effectively, and the clock was ticking. Delay tactics will do you no good, Terran. Alexergia thought spoke to the figure. I'll get all the information I'm after, sooner or later. It is just a matter of time, and I have all of it in the world. So please stop stalling and give me what I want. What do you want? Alexergia huffed in exasperation. Your thoughts, you fool. Seriously, stop playing games. I do not want to have to damage your consciousness any more than what will naturally occur during the extraction. She softened her tone. Do not worry. There'll only be a brief moment of pain. But then, it'll all be okay. Pain. The word exploded through Exergia's mind, momentarily consuming her consciousness. At the same time, there had been a blast of psychic energy. The thought unleashed, similar in intensity to the Slurvid Maelstrom, but instead of a planet-wide storm, the energy had been pinpoint-focused on Alexergia's thought presence. Alexergia rocked back in her chair, her psychic shields holding, but just barely. Her established set of memories had held, but the echoes of the blast made it difficult to focus on them. She grabbed one of the echoes to examine it, and was immediately surrounded by the sounds of roaring flames and screaming. The hot wind of roaring fires and the smell of blood filled the sensor organs, and all around her she saw rubble, bodies, and parts of bodies of various species, mostly Terran. And Exergia let go of the echo, disturbed not by what she had seen, felt, or smelled, but by the fact that she had experienced a memory with three of her sense organs. All her memories were mostly visual, and the difficulty in dealing with them was usually slowing them down enough to pick out individual ones. Slurvid memories were mostly visual, but occasionally would have sound, although the sounds were not synced with the visual memories, and this was typically present only in those experiencing great distress and on the edge of losing hold of their sanity. The memory that Alexergia had just experienced had only been an echo, an after-image of the original, but it contained three senses, and they were all synced. 
Alexergia decided that she was done for today. She needed far more research and would need to consult with the superiors before she dealt with this any further. She refocused her thought presence to the room with the grey figure, but was stunned when the thought projection revealed that the grey figure and the chair were gone. Instead, there was a black door with a gold handle, exactly the same as the first one. Alexergia thought spoke. <laughs> Very funny, changing your thought presence to a door. I've taken everything I need for today, but I will be back soon, she bluffed. Her message was met with silence. Fine, whatever, Alexergia thought. He's not going anywhere anytime soon, and I'll crack him sooner or later. She briefly scanned for his consciousness, which was still active in the mind space, and then she focused on surfacing. She dismissed the current thought projection and thought created a new room, similar to the one her physical body was in, with her in it alone, and sliding a door that she would walk through to exit from the mind space. She scanned the mind space and thought projected her creation to a location that did not contain any of the Terran's consciousness. When her consciousness aligned with her thought projection, she stopped her tracks. Instead of a familiar room and sliding door, she was surrounded by mottled grey, and in front of her was a black door with a gold handle. Trying not to panic, she initiated the emergency procedures for when interrogation dives go wrong. She recalled her established shed of memories, going through them quickly so that she could move on to the next step before signaling the cognitive containment system for an emergency service. All she had to do was follow her training and everything would be alright. Except something was wrong, something with her established set of memories. One of them wasn't what it should have been. She hastily went through them again. There was the memory of being a broodling and being assigned a matron and bonding with her chemically and physically. There was a memory of being chosen as a soldier to fight with the Trevorian Empire. Continuing down the list of memories of her training as a soldier, her first kill, a small dark-haired girl in a pink dress and tiara. The time she drank too much full and got sick. Wait... Why was there a memory of a Terran girl in her established set of memories? Alexergia tried to remove their memory from her set, but it was her memory now. No! Alexergia thought screamed and tried to get back to the memory that was supposed to be there. Something about that day she graduated from training with her Hive sisters. The memory had come back for a brief second, but then it evaporated again, leaving Alexergia grasping at emptiness. Then she started remembering. It had been a celebration, a birthday, which, while uniquely human and never acknowledged in Dravorian culture, now seemed to make perfect sense to Alexergia. The young girl danced and sang along with everyone else, wishing her a happy birthday. When she stopped dancing, the little girl looked up and, with a big smile, puffed up her cheeks and blew. Alexergia found that she was standing in front of a black door again, surrounded by mottled grey static. Panic setting in, she turned to run, only to discover that the ground was no longer there. She fell and eventually collided with something. Alexergia could taste her blood in her mouth, where her mandibles had collided with whatever surface was under her. Alexergia knew that she should not be able to taste. This was a mental projection, and there was no need for taste in the mind space. She curled her thorax and brought her legs into forming a ball. 
She just had to wait. Yes, that was it. Eventually, the timer that limited how long a dive could take place would count down, and emergency service procedures would be initiated. She went through her established set of memories again, working to maintain her sanity. Everything seemed to be as it should be. No. Wait. Why was there a memory of an old Terran woman dying? Without actively willing it, the memory began to play Wilexergia. The old woman, laying on her bed, reached up. There were tears in her eyes, but a smile on her face. Her lips moved, and she whispered, My boy, you're here. You remember our song. See, Mama, Ricardo, said the male Terran voice. Both the old woman and the unseen male began singing. One for you. And then the old woman and the male made a sucking sound with their lips. One for me. Both of them made another set of sucking sounds. In the end, we shall see who has the love in their heart. After this, the old woman settled back into her bed, took a deep breath, and then stopped breathing. Madagsergia couldn't remember what memory she was supposed to have instead of this one. She could only remember singing a song with her mother right before her mother died. But it wasn't her mother. Alexergia thought shouted, If you carry on with this, the cognitive containment system will trigger a failsafe and send a blast of radiation into your brain, ending your life. My brain or your brain? The disembodied voice asked. It then began to sing. One for you, one for me. In the end, we shall see who has the darkness in their heart. What did the Terran mean? My brain or your brain? Alexergia panicked. Maybe if too many of her memories were replaced with the Terran, the cognitive containment system would get confused and fry her brain instead. How much longer before the safety timer tripped? What if the mixing of memories has messed up the system? I have to hold on so my brain doesn't get fried. My memories. I'll review my memories. Alexergia thought confidently. She reviewed her established shadow memories again. Nothing seemed out of place for the Dravarian interrogator. The little girl in the pink dress, the old woman in the bed, a dog and some body of water, eating Terran food with a woman. All of her established set of memories made sense. Except for one. There was one memory out of place and it involved a giant insect creature that was moving its mandibles rapidly. Alexergia was afraid to examine that memory, but felt somehow compelled to do so. Interrogator Primary Alexergia, get a hold of yourself! The creature shouted at her. You are a soldier of the Dravarian Empire, and you will not succumb to the Terran filth. I'm a what? Alexergia thought. Something was off. Nothing was making sense anymore, and she wasn't sure how to proceed. She returned to the memory. Interrogator Primary Alexergia, you are in danger of being compromised by the Terran, and you must regain control of your mind space immediately. Alexergia snapped out of the confusion that she'd been experiencing. The brood mother is right. I cannot succumb to this Terran filth. I will regain control of my mind space. Complete emergency process for resurfacing and then forward all information to intelligent command, she thought to herself. Excellent work, interrogator primary Alexergia. I'm glad to see that you've broken free of the Terran's tricks. All right, now in order to make sure that you do this right, tell me the steps you'll be taking to complete the surfacing and reporting to Intelligence Command. 
Alexergia felt very proud of herself. She had defeated a mighty foe and had earned the commendation of a broodmother. After confirming the emergency surface and transmission protocols with the broodmother, Alexergia completed the steps. As her consciousness aligned with the thought projection, she found herself surrounded by mottled grey static, standing in front of a black door with a gold handle. Alexergia screamed and fell to her knees, her claws scratching gouges in her head and tearing out some of her eyes. Her voice quietly sang to her, One for you, one for me. In the end, we shall see who has darkness in their heart. Shortly thereafter, the time safety system initiated an emergency surface for interrogator primary, Alexergia. An alarm notified other Drivarian interrogator staff that there had been an emergency procedure initiated, but also that information had been passed onto the Drivarian Empire's intelligence command. An investigation was started as to why interrogator primary Alexergia had sought fit to gouge her head and eyes out with her claws and the possible failure of the cognitive containment system. Although interrogator primary Alexergia had the same number of established set memories as when she began the interrogation, they appeared to have been corrupted. Gathering information on the investigation had been hampered, however, by the fact that the only thing Alexergia was capable of saying was, One for you, one for me. In the end, we shall see who is darkness in their heart. A parallel investigation was also started to determine what information regarding the Terran had been sent to the Intelligence Command, and why within 24 hours of the transmission, many of the Drivarians working in Intelligence Command had taken their own lives. Six days later, as the information networks of the Drivarian Empire became increasingly useless due to an unknown phenomenon involving a series of images showing a small Terran girl in a pink dress, amongst others, and the audio being stuck repeating the same message over and over about darkness in their heart. The Dravorians surrendered. Miguel enjoyed the hell out of a hot shower and was looking forward to a cold beer or two off base once he finished up his tasks at the 102nd Terran Psychological Warfare Battalion. As he walked down the hall with just a towel around his waist, he passed another soldier. Hey Miguel, nice work out there, Manor. You really shook those bugs up. Glad to see you were part of the first POW exchange. Yeah, well, just doing my duty, right? After the first interrogation, they just left me in my cell. I was hoping for another shot at them, but, uh, Miguel shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> I guess, but, uh, you really did a number on them. I even heard that the bug who tried to interrogate you offed herself. Yeah, well, she was pretty messed up, so I'm not surprised, right? Man, Miguel, they're all messed up, dude. Anyway, I was thinking you could grab some beers late. Whoa, dude. When did you have the time to get new ink? What? What do you mean? I mean the Grim Reaper tat. Weren't there 12 gravestones before? Now I'm counting 13. Dude, you're paying way too much attention to my body, Abiko. I told you that it ain't my style. I've always had 13 gravestones on the stat. Huh. Some super spook you are, Miguel laughed. The other soldier laughed too. Yeah, whatever. Anyways, beer's at 17.30 after retreat, right? You got a Migo, Miguel smiled as he continued to walk down the hall, humming a familiar tune. One for you, one for me. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 975. Story number one. Retirement 
written by archivist on the mountain. The ship shook with the disturbing harmonics, indicating that the slip drive could stand to be adjusted again. Even though the ship was ours, the engine was invented by us. We didn't understand it properly. But properly meant able to tune it so that it worked in concert with itself. It kept us moving, though, and made it possible to travel the stars. Our exploratory vessel, Attempted Business, was one of several experimental craft tasked with finding places for our people to live. Home was just too crowded. And while space is big, and stars are plentiful, and planets are common, finding a planet that was right for us was projected to be a waste of time, even though we needed one badly. The brains that studied the skies told us that we had no chance of finding anything usable, even if we were to launch a thousand voyages. Our second stop yielded a planet that we could move into tomorrow, this afternoon if we were in a hurry. Huh, that's odd. We were expanding our reach and knowledge and, hopefully, our wealth. All alone out here in the black means that a specialist ship would die pretty easily. We had proof of that. So, we had tools and raw stock and, uh, never mind. We had a little of everything and a lot of somethings, and the only information we had was from several centuries of astronomical scans from the sole vantage point of our astronomers had, our home. It wasn't enough, so we got sent out here. A long way from home, looking close up to the things that we'd only seen from far away, we found a paradise in our second star system that we stopped at. The atmosphere was a perfect mix, with the occasional wind less than destructive. Her biosphere had no allergens. Do you know how weird that is? Our home has allergens. The forests were green, the prairies are lush, the seas were fertile. The mountains were tall and straight, and dotted with all deposits along their proud sides. If we wanted a new home, all we needed to do was land. Just to be sure, I pulled out the latest thing, our exploratory gadgets, our mind detector. We understood it less well than our propulsion drive, but according to how it was used dirt side, it would tell us if there were any intelligent beings loitering around the real estate we desired. It was clean, ready to move in the... Oh yeah, where were the owners? Who calls this home? Our captain ordered all of our gathered data loaded into a message beacon and sent back home. We were going to carry on, while the shipbuilders could begin laying a keel for a colony ship. As ordered, we looked for more planets like the one we found. And we hit a jackpot again on the 3rd, 5th, and 8th through 17th snops. I was hoping that the scientists didn't know Jack, because if they did, something very strange was going on. We... We're out of message beacons at that point, and our mind detector still told us that the planets were empty. We periodically checked, and it also told us that our ship was occupied. I kept assuming that that meant that it wasn't out of whack. We just kept logging the data, the coordinates and orbit vectors, the temperature and life spectrum, the satellites and tectonic clefts. Survey System 18 proved that we were being played. Six habitable planets ringing the star, all strung out along the same orbit, and moons galore, at least two per planet, all orbiting vertically to the plane of the planetary orbit. They were perfect launch points for intrasystem trade. 
We couldn't have designed a better system. Yes, an infinite universe, odd coincidences are about to happen, but uh, there was no way. The crew recreated every anti-bad luck token, fetish, charm, talisman, amulet, totem, and idol ever produced in our entire history. And then they went on to create new ones. Because if there was one constant we knew in the universe, it was fortune will always even out. We were so screwed. And then the magic jewel in our sensor station started to shriek and flash and vibrate making the bridge crew just about jump out their skin. And intelligence, and it was outside our ship. We'd found aliens. All we had was a signal strength, so the intrepid, handsome navigator, me, suggested a few maneuvers that would allow us to take that data and do something useful with it. After a quick pop over to three more points all over the system, we knew where our target was. It was on the second planet by size, just off the equator, at the edge of a large savanna, with no appreciable rivulets of streams to disturb the almost perfectly smooth area where we could land and investigate. Again, something deeply weird was happening. The captain narrowed his eyes, fingered the amulet hung around his neck, and turned to his computer to update his will. The bridge crew mostly followed his lead. Mine was already done. A minor trip with our number two shuttle was put us in a comfortable walk from the alien's location. We did not have to wait for an uncomfortable amount of time for our hull to cool enough to open the door. But, well, the whole dream of the matter transmission by quantum linkage and remote assembly. Not going to happen until most of the universe's computational resources. We were planning on a significant but short walk to gradually come close to the alien to show no ill intent and show some humidity because, uh, one alien? No observable transport, infrastructure, cities, what have you. Our most powerful optical sensors, a hobby telescope owned by the ship's chef, showed no buildings, no infrastructure, no agricultural development, no quarries. This was a hermit of some type, a castaway from a space-faring race. Anyway, and we were outclassed. Humility was the kind of thing that could conceal desperate caution, which is what we were really feeling. So we were very unsettled to find an alien waiting for us when we opened the hatch. It was mostly like us, in form, only beige. No, even that, perhaps, taupe. No, that was too dark. But it was in that general family, which suggested that its ancestry was impossibly convoluted. It sported cranial hair and the same color range, leading to a sadly monochromatic appearance. It was clothed in khaki and umber and tan, which didn't help. Sitting in a chair that had finished metallic frame and flexible material in deep green swarming a support surface. In its hands, it held a plant, the root ball free of dirt in one hand, and it was stroking the leaves with the other. It glanced over at us and waved with an open hand, Fingers were stubby, but the palm seemed but longer than ours. I'll be with you in a moment, it called out. We were stunned. The next bit took a little longer than I'd planned. Really? An alien looking basically just like us, speaking our common planetary tongue with a rustic accent. I turned to the security officer next to me and whispered, Hold still. 
the next moment ripping off a talisman of obscurity from his upper bicep, where it had been tied on just where the red shirt sleeve ended. I'm gonna need this. I wasn't the only one. Junior bridge officers around me were forgetting their diplomatic training and trying to quietly scrabble for ownership over some unique charms to bolster some holes in their defenses. Too many coincidences, too much good fortune. How are we going to pay for all of this? The captain, who really should have stayed on the ship, but who is going to pull rank on the captain, intervened to prevent the juniors from spiraling out of control and then arranged us in ranks and grades to await the attention of the alien. It took a while, but the discipline was enough for the moments that we were waiting. Finally, the alien got up from his chair and walked over to us. Thank you for waiting. That reshaping was at a critical stage and difficult to interrupt. The words were clear, but the meaning wasn't, and the captain had evidently decided to ignore that. He responded, Thank you for talking with us, um, now you the owner of this world. The alien looked at the captain with what seemed to be a quizzical expression. Well, uh, I suppose so, he eventually said. I like to grow things, and I'm really just puttering around here to see the last things I planted. Where are you from? Before the captain could answer, I went on. No, wait, you're from that odd GB4 star about a thousand parsecs away, right? That would explain the chromatic emitters on your dermis, and a way to redirect some of the excess environmental energy. The captain looked at his senior officers. The rest of us exchanged glances. It wasn't until five years ago that the medical community figured out why our skin colors dimmed when we were in extreme isolation. The second environment experiment had to be aborted when the environauts lost color, and everyone thought that they were going to die because they looked like... This... this... uh... alien? The alien stood a little straighter. Yes, I believe I need to introduce myself. My name will mean nothing to you. I'm from a very long ways away, and I was born an impossibly long time ago. But I've been waiting for you. I am, in a sense, your father. I've never seen the captain speechless. It's his main job to talk to us all into submission, and right then... He had no words. I made your people, and I've been waiting to see you finally make your first steps away from your home. He waved his hand around to encompass everything. I've been keeping myself busy preparing a few spots for you to stretch out. You mean we can skip the comic thump? This from the brash environmental officer. Young, blue skin, no self-control to speak of. The alien laughed. There is no comic debt. I've been stopped for a little while on most of the suitable planets, tidying up a little here and there, just making them a little nicer for your first colonies. He reached out and picked up a chair and folded it into a thick rectangle. And now that you know you're allowed to be here, I must be off. The captain put in, Can we go back a minute? Because you said that you made us. What do you mean by that? The alien stopped and looked at the captain curiously. I meant the word that came out of my mouth. I made you. I put your planet together, designed a variant of the hereditary molecule that would work both chemically and topologically for your environment, and periodically adjusted the course of natural selection to produce the kind of beings that would, in turn, produce you. And when your ancestors were too stupid to make a certain natural leap on their own, I taught them how to write and read. 
He stepped closer to the captain, completely violating his personal space. I made you. He stepped back outside the polite distance. It's too early to see if you'll be anything special, but I have hopes. He looked at the captain up and down. In spite of your demonstrated uh, disabilities, you might still become something worth keeping. The environmental officer spoke up again. You put our planet together, but it's, it's over five billion years old. The alien rolled his eyes. About that, yeah. I built the last kid, and I've been around a while. But, but, why? He smiled. A worthy question. Think on this. After you fight, explore, build, and experience, and organize, what is left? There was a pause while all of us tried to not look like we were avoiding answering the question. I finally decided to put on my all in. Retirement, the alien smirked. And when an accomplished individual gets tired of competing with others and steps away from daily effort, what does he do? There was another pause betraying our lack of imagination. He builds a greenhouse in his back garden and putters around in the garden. Eventually, a mature individual, civilization, or species find that their mature efforts are best used to grow. Things. Abilities. Evolves. Peoples. Before I could process what he said, he went on, And I need to go. You can move anywhere you want. Do anything you can. You can't get to anywhere that's off limits. What you do will be how I judge you. Have fun. And with that, he simply disappeared. We hightailed it back home to report, and within 15 years, most of our population lived away from home. I still can't feel like an adult, now that I know that we're so young, and that uh, Dad is still paying our rent, as it were. But I picked up on the clue. It appears that most of the universe is computational resources. I'm still exploring, because somewhere out there is a way to log in. End of story. Story number two. What humanity saw by species unknown. One. What humanity saw when they cast themselves through the void was a vast, lonely emptiness. Two. Humanity said, fuck that. Hans, let's make some friends. Three. And so humanity uplifted their oldest friends, the dogs, and saw that they were the goodest boys and girls. Four. But the void was still lonely, with only one other creature. And humanity loves a challenge. Five. So they said, Hans, lassie, uplift the cats. Six. And so the cats were uplifted, and humanity saw that there were still kings and queens of their domain. Seven. Now humanity was more knowledgeable of uplifting creatures, and wanted a further challenge. Eight. So, they said, Hans, Lassie, Tom, let's give fish legs. Nine. And so humanity gave sharks, whales, and other aquatic creatures legs and the ability to exist outside of water, and saw that that was pretty cool. Ten. But humanity wanted an even greater challenge, now that the void was so far less lonely. Eleven. As they tried to decide what to uplift next, the coffee boy said meekly, Dragons would be pretty cool. Twelve. Humanity looked at each other before crying out in delight. Hunts, Lassie, Tom, Bruce, Shamu, Nemu, Dory. 
Make us some motherfucking dragons! And so, humanity made dragons a reality, and saw that it was really fucking awesome. Book of Humanity 69, 1-13 End of story. Tales from Outer Space 976 Story number 1 The Abyss Gazes Back Written by Icefire 9 When the people of the home began to explore the multiverse, they were filled with curiosity, hope, and wonderment. What mysterious new worlds would they find? What strange new species? Just how diverse is infinite multiverse? The home is static, a soup of gases, liquids, and solids intermixed with each other. The universe has been this way for billions of years, perhaps more ever. Routinely, currents sweep in from the vast expanse, bringing in new nutrients and materials. Life flourished in the home, and no one ever truly wanted for anything. Millions of species coexisted peacefully. The crew of the vessel to enter another universe suffocated in seconds as the air escaped into the void. At least 99.99% of this universe was pure vacuum, and no ship had ever been designed to be airtight. There was never any need. Vacuums had been created and designed in laboratories. Sometimes they were even useful, but nobody had ever thought that such a thing could exist in nature. The natural tendency of things, claimed philosophers, was for something to exist within a space. What is the point of a volume existing if there was nothing to fill it? The crew of the second vessel rose to death. It turns out the vacuum is far colder than anything they encountered outside the laboratories. Scientists had thought it impossible for something so cold to exist in nature. In the reality, perhaps that was true, but not in the strange new one. The crew of the third died of radiation sickness. It took a while to figure out how. How could something simultaneously be so cold yet filled with deadly radiation? The answer was terrifying. The vast majority of this world was a vacuum, yes. But the parts that weren't empty space were nuclear fusion reactors of vastly incomprehensible size. They spewed scorching radiation out into space, sterilizing anything nearby. The crew of the fourth was ripped apart by a close encounter with uh, something. It wasn't a collision. They simply passed by a large rocky object that tore their ship apart from a distance. It was at this point that the scientists began to figure out how this universe works. What made it different? It was just one thing. Something they called a universal attractive force. Everything in the universe was attracted to everything else. Materials, instead of mixing together into a life-giving super, pervades the home, coalesce and collapse into these massive fusion reactors, leaving the surrounding space empty. The fifth crew survived. They, who had never seen more than a few feet in front of them through the mists of the home, now saw infinity. They saw the endless blackness of the void, and they saw the countless pinpricks of light, each one an incomprehensibly powerful inferno. It was deadly. It was impossible. It was incredible. It was beautiful. 
an enormous mouth like each of the thousands of dots of light was an eye. It was almost as if the universe was watching them. And as they peered into the endless void of growing existential terror, they could swear that they heard it speak to them, You do not belong here. Leave. And so they did. The scientists and the philosophers and prophets and politicians all agreed that this universe was uninhabitable by any and all forms of life. Explorers turned to the next one, hoping to find something more hospitable. They didn't. Instead, they found in the universe after universe the same thing. Gravity, the vacuum, the lights seemingly watching them like the many-eyed eldritch creature. The prophets and religions of the home were quick to spin these discoveries. They were blessed. They were special. The home was unique in the multiverse. Truly, they said, we are the chosen ones. Those who had actually been in any other universe could never quite bring themselves to believe it. Privately, in the back of their minds, they knew the truth. The other universes weren't the accidents. The home was the accident. The other universes, with their power and majesty and lethality and beauty, were how reality was truly meant to be. The home, with its soup-like mists, had shrouded them from the truth. Most people regarded the explorers who came back from the other universes as somewhat insane. The explorers, those who had looked into the infinite and saw the infinite look back at them, believed themselves to be enlightened. At first, these explorers swore that they would never go back. Eventually, every last one gave in. The stare of the universe, it wove its way into their dreams. It was incredible. It was astonishing. It was evil and wonderful. It was everything and nothing. It was impossible to resist. They had gotten bolder, moving closer to the massive infernos. They'd set their ships to careen around rocky bodies that itself was careening around the inferno. That's how these universes work. If you move fast enough sideways, the attractive force won't pull you in fast enough that you'll just end up going in circles. It was insane. It didn't take long for them to notice, as they passed over the lit side into the side shrouded by darkness. They saw the truth. Lights, thousands of lights dotted the surface. There were shining hubs, out from which filaments of light spread out like cracks in a glass. With dawning horror, they realized. This was life. This was sentience. How is this possible? How could something possibly live in an orb of rock in a freezing vacuum of space, falling around an unfathomably huge thermonuclear explosion? What sort of eldritch creature could survive, even thrive, in such a place? And yet... There the proof was, the lights staring up at them, just as the lights of a thousand infernos stared down. And then the universe said, Now do you see? You do not belong here. Reality isn't meant for you. It belongs to them. End of story. Story number two. How they fight. Written by Empty Space. The Ntazo are an elegant people. You can tell how they fight. 
The Intarza rifle looks almost indistinguishable from one of our own curved blades, and doubles with the same function. The standard fighting style doesn't squander this benefit, dashing across lines and down ranks, breaking enemy with gunfire and slashes until the enemy is too tired to fight. A first fight between two Intarza is difficult to tell apart from a dance, and this elegance is reflected in every aspect of their society with tall, arching buildings gracing their planet and flowing words rolling along one another as they speak. Everything, from the way they carry themselves to the performance in bed, is best described as elegant. I can speak from experience, not only that all people on the galaxy should sleep with an Intarsio at some point in their lives, but for their fighting. I fought the Intarsio army before. I've seen how they operate. I fought a great many battles before, against a great many people. This acrylic are a proud people, and you can see it also in how they fight. When I was engaged with them and one on their colonies, I saw a battalion of them forsake their weapons as their heads raised and their throats roared as they signal their charge. They moved with an order only befitting one fueled by honor. When one of my squadmates felt injured, they did not strike at him. They didn't move to kill him. Instead, they cleared away, moving the site of battle away from the fallen warrior. When the dust cleared and we saw that he was not with us, we assumed that he was taken prisoner. Until the next morning, we found him sleeping at the front gates of our base of operations, and the acrylic had made sutures over his wounds. Like the Intarsia, their architecture says much about their pride, with facades on their homes telling of battles, both external and internal, the inhabitants had fought. Some met with victory, others with less success. But this acrylic value the fight more than victory. Defeat is only a possible outcome to them, and returning defeated is no more shameful than returning victorious. You can see this in how they fight. I fought a great many people before, but there is one race that I haven't fought. I've hardly seen them fight either, the race called human. The only human I've ever seen fighting was when one of my friends showed me what was supposed to be a sparring match between two of the greatest human hand-to-hand -hand experts in their arts. It was hardly a spectacle. The two stood there in defensive postures, circling each other, rocking back and forth and occasionally making a threatening movement, for two of their hours straight. Eventually, one overextended himself, and the other exploited the opening. What had taken two hours to build up was then ended in two seconds. As quickly as it ended, the combatants showed their respect for each other, and immediately settled into their alert posture again for round two. But already seen enough, Combined with reports of their success against the Hellion and a brief net search of their homeworld, I understood how they fought. The humans are an inefficient people. You can see it in how they fight. The combatants didn't make a move and didn't think that it could win. Only those which would produce the desired consequences would be expressed, and if they couldn't strike with a significantly positive result, they waited. They were content with waiting until the opponent should make a mistake, no matter how long it may be. When they were confident enough in their movement, they made sure that it was done. 
and the manner in which they acted was surprising. I had to slow down the last two seconds of their match just to see how it was done, and was almost concerned with how it was done. The maneuver must have required such an intimate understanding of their own physiology. I don't know if I could rival it with my knowledge of my own. And the pictures I found of their world only served to confirm this. While the Intasio pursue elegance in aesthetics and the Zulkrilic pursue honor in decoration, humans appear to care little about how their architecture looks on the outside. Many of their structures are simple rectangular blocks covered in glass. A human assured me that this was starkly elegant, but I'm not sure if I believe them. The humans are an efficient people, and the only ones I dread having to fight. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 977. Story number one. Half a gram, written by Man Bear Scientist. The second confirmed extraterrestrial contact was in 1996, August 22nd to be precise. An absolutely satisfactory Thursday, cloudless with reasonable temperatures, perfect for a trip to the park or an early morning run. Not that there was a park in that small town, nor anyone that ran. In fact, at the time of touchdown, not a single one of the town's 307 residents was actually outside. You can probably separate those residents into three groups. First were the children, who had just started a new year of school and mostly saw the day's perfection as an insulting reminder of an ended summer. And then you had the adults, working either in the school themselves or traveling to the closest major city. Finally, you have the senior citizens. Of the three groups, they probably spent the most time outside. However, it was 10.30 a.m., and there was a routine to be kept. 10.30 meant one and one thing only. It was time to meet the Moe's. Of course, Moe's wasn't the name of the restaurant. The original Moe's Diner had closed down in 1978 when the mill left. But to the old-timers, it was and always would be Moe's, no matter who currently owned it or how many times they tried to correct them. Of course, if any outsider asked for directions, they would be given a series of hints referring to other places that no longer existed. Right past Pickerel Corner, take a left where the farmhouse burnt down. You can't miss it. The one thing that hadn't changed was most special. For $6.50, you got chicken fried steak, homemade gravy, your choice of vegetable, a salad, and a pair of biscuits everyone knew came from the store. For the old-timers, this was simply known as the usual. At the time of contact, the regulars were currently enjoying the usual and their favorite activity, gossip. If the diner had more than one waitress, they probably would have noticed. But at the time, the sole waitress, owner, and cook spent most of her time during the dead hours, gossiping right along with the regulars. When the doorbell rang, she assumed it was just another regular, and went up to cook another batch of the usual. Of course, she probably should have gone to ask for their order, but it was 10.40, and the only one person ever comes in at 10.40. She didn't hear the rumble of his pride and joy pull up, but it wasn't too weird. She rarely heard the tan 69 charger when she was up gossiping, and if any, if the regulars had earned the name, Paul was a cut above the rest. 
You could count the number of times he'd missed his get-together in one hand, and you wouldn't need the hand to count the numbers of times he actually arrived on time. He ordered most special with coffee, black, and preferred green beans over corn and cottage cheese over salad. When she finished, she put the plate on the corner for Paul to pick up and went back over to the gossip. It took her ten minutes to realize that Paul had never joined the group, and another ten minutes to realize the plate had been emptied and left in the counter on the other side of the diner. Furious at the diner dash, she walked up to put the plate away and realized that the customer had left something on the table. Gold, half a gram, about half the size of a penny, worth exactly $6.50. That, at least, was the story. The next day, she learned why Paul never made it. His prize charger wouldn't start. Right before he went to leave that morning, there was a bang from out in the field, and then all the power went out. He reported the outage and went to go to Moe's while the transformer was replaced, but then the charger wouldn't start, wouldn't even turn. An hour later, the lights kicked back on. The power company said the transformer was perfectly fine. The next day, Paul was back at Moe's, and everything went back to normal. Then, it happened again, a little over a year later, Friday, September 12, 1997. And again, on October 3, 1998, once every 384 days, an unseen visitor replaced Paul at the Daily Moe's meetup and paid in gold, always in exact change. It wasn't until 2004 that anyone outside the town caught on. A high school senior that worked at the diner on weekends learned of this mysterious guest and wrote a column in the school's newspaper about the local hauntings and poltergeists, and mentioned the stranger at Moe's as one of the prominent examples. A bored traveler on January 5th, 2004, sits down, picks up a school paper, and tries to pass the time while they wait for food. They don't believe a word, until the waitress gets up and goes to the far side of the diner, and picks up a tiny piece of gold from the far side of the diner. They share their experience on the conspiracy blog when they get home, and over the time a fair number of paranormal tourists begin to make a trip to Moe's as one of the stops on their haunted house trip. An FBI agent, recently moved upstate, takes a trip to Moe's on Sunday, January 23, 2005. He hears the story about the gold, and suspects that it is a cover for some sort of illegal operation. After seeing the waitress palm the gold, he is sure of it. He asks for the owner, and the waitress tells him that she is the owner, and the cook, and that she was sure that the food was fine, and doesn't want to hear any fuss. A flip of the badge, and she shuts up. He checks out the kitchen and the register, and other than it being relatively unclean, he can't find any untoward. She tells him her story but he remains suspicious. Anyway, that is how it started. Any questions? Good. The FBI agent, a Mr. John Dalworthy, became a regular at the diner, a side effect of being stationed out in the middle of nowhere. He was both time to kill and is bored enough to sit and wait for another mysterious visit. At first, he stays primarily for the thrill of the hunt, but after a while, he mostly comes for the food to say hello to the other regulars. Every day he notes in his journal the time he enters and leaves, whether or not the stranger arrived, and any other odd occurrences.
These notes are how we learned of the alien's 384-day pilgrimage and of the powerful neurocognitive effect it has on outsiders. John was in town for three of the stranger's arrivals, and each time noted that he spent an extra 12 minutes at the diner without realizing it or noticing any creature enter or leave. Of course, it takes many more years to thoroughly understand the phenomena. By the late 2010s, the US government had formally recognized that the event was extraterrestrial in nature. By the 2020s, it had set up a permanent network of drones around the town and detected the telltale signs of an alien ship bursting through the warp bubble around what the regulars call Paul's Place. Though Paul hadn't been alive for 15 years at that point. By the 2030s, the observation of the pilgrimage had led an enormous breakthrough, the creation of the warp drive derived mostly from reverse engineering of the alien's idleship of these trips to Mars, It was this warp drive that enabled humanity to leave Earth. The principles of the warp drive are now known even to schoolchildren, but at the time they were miraculous and almost magical. The complex space-time geometries of the lattice allowed for folds, but only in specific locations. It was nearly impossible to predict where a fold could or could not be made, nor to know the size of a fold before it was made. Indeed, there was only three spots in the soul capable of folds, and only one of those spots connects to anything useful. That spot, of course, is Paul's Point, the hub of interstellar transport for the soul system. The first tests of the warp drive involved sending a drone through Paul's Point and recording the surroundings. The expectation was that the drone would discover some form of odd alien homeworld, and many were even afraid of causing hostile reactions. However, what they actually found was barely a habitable moon, with a small atmosphere rich in oxygen and nitrogen. Around the exit were a number of shiny oblong housings. They did not stay long enough to get the detailed view, but they did discover that the other side was inhabited. Now let my colleague, Bez, 13th generation, tell the rest. Pop, crackle, hiss. Greetings, humans. I am Bez, daughter of 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 Bez. Our species is extremely different from our sapiens. We have a hive structure led by a queen and have clearly defined larval, people, and adult forms. The founder of the current hive was Bez, first generation, as was customary for queen broods. Bez was one of many competing broodlings. She alone possessed the queen's mutation of neurocognesis, and for this advantageous deformity, she was targeted by the other broodlings. They forced her into exile, before she reached the adult stage and her powers bloomed. It was known that Almu, Nazan, possessed breathable air and several warp points, one such point connected to our planet, giving the moon its atmosphere and letting us move back and forth on the warp ships without needing propulsion systems. The moon does not, however, possess any multicellular life beyond basic algae. Exile to the moon would limit Bez's nutrition intake and ensure a deformed, insignificant adult. Bez, however, was not content to munch algae and grow weak. She used the remaining fuel in her ship's warp drive to make a shorter jump. While she could not return to the planet proper, distance through warp points is highly variable. The warp between Nezen and Paul's Point is one of the lowest on record. She emerged onto your world 
elated to land on a planet with flora and fauna. However, she found the gravity on your world to be far lighter than our home planet, now called Bez. In a larval stage and without effective weaponry on her ship, she would fare little better than non-Nezen, as most of the creatures grew far larger than those on our planet. She wandered aimlessly, hoping to find a hunting grounds that would be safe enough for her to grow to adulthood and with enough prey for her to create a marvelous pupa. That is, until she found the aluminium chapel. The human at the chapel, known as Mose, saw Bez salivating at the smells emanating from the chapel and took her in. I am told that it took a great deal of courage, as a larval stage is supposedly quite revolting to humans. It has been described as a cross between a tarantula and a koala's, and is slightly smaller than even your infants. Mose hid Bez from other humans and fed her as would any other of the regulars, a steady serving of Mose special. This was ideal for the developing queen, delivering high amounts of fats and raw calories that she needed to develop. Its effect was even stronger than the royal jetty we feed to our broodlings, and triggered an especially intensive epigenetic polymorphic shift once the queen reached a pupil stage. The rest, they say, is history. Bez was able to reach adulthood under Mose and had a great reverence for the generosity. She reached a pupil stage in a farmhouse nearby, and the exothermic metamorphosis created enough energy to cause a small fire nearby. Once she reached adulthood, she was able to tap into the electric network to restore the power to her ship, allowing her to return to Nezen and then to Bez. Her glorious ascension was swift and led Bez to the fourth epoch, such was its glory, our people wished only to learn of the secret of her transformation. She told us of Mose and the Aluminium Chapel, and we fell into prayer. Our queens learned more of your world, of your customs and money, but that knowledge did not stop our prayers. We began to create chapels of our own, and once every year, on Ascension Day, the foremost queen takes a pilgrimage to the Chapel of Mose and feasts upon the Mose special. We are not longer such a religious people, but we still honor the bravery and generosity of your race and the traditions of Ascension Day. We hope to forever be a regular at the Aluminium Chapel and an ally at your side. The students rise to applause the guest lecturer after the narration device finishes. The small furry humanoid steps down from the podium, about two feet in height. It has to climb a specifically sized ladder to reach the floor. For these students, this was a rare honor, a royal visit at Dalworthy Hall. They were here because they wanted to be explorers, astronauts, warp junkies, if you wanted to walk, you went to the Nezen Academy, located near Bez's Point. Its aluminium walls contained most of the knowledge both species had accumulated on warp travel. It wasn't hard for the humans to adjust to life on Nezen. After all, Nezen's gravity was 0.94 Gs, and the human food court was at a top rate. It was a little harder for the descendants of Bez proper. Not only did they have to deal with the much lower gravity... They had a hard time adjusting to the size of the university and to dealing with the Moes. On the plus side, up here, even workers and drones were allowed to feast on the nutrient-rich human food. As was tradition, they paid primarily in gold stock. The discovery of large quantities of gold on Bez had rapidly depreciated its value. 
but it still only took half a gram of gold to pay for a meal. The human establishments never griped at their insistence in avoiding credit. They do, however, wish that the Bez would learn to tip. End of story. Story number two. Everyone Comes From Earth, written by Glitchkey. Everyone comes from Earth. No, no, not that one. Not yours, well, you come from your Earth. I suppose I should clarify. One of the most startling things scientists find upon making first contact with the Federation is that nearly every species named their planet Earth. In their own language, of course. They named it for what they supported them, helped them grow, and allowed them to flourish. Moon, stars, interstellar objects, those all have wildly different naming schemes. But everyone comes from Earth, or the closest thing they have. Most aquatic species in the Federation actually come from sea, for example. The avian species largely come from sky. Now, this isn't always the case. There have been a few one-off races with an unusual worlds, but they're pretty self-explanatory in context. The Uriel come from island, because their world is comprised of large archipelagos rather than substantial landmasses. The Cortaloon come from valley, because their uniquely damaged world has a small habitable zone formed as a massive rift valley. The Rarith come from twilight, because their world was tidally locked and only the twilight between day and night could support life. But still, the meaning is the same. Everyone comes from Earth. Everyone from sky to sea to somewhere in between comes from a world that supported them, cared for them, and is named for what it is. Everyone comes from a world named for their home. In fact, it is such a common aspect of interspecies exchange that everyone comes from Earth is rapidly becoming a near-universal colloquialism. It roughly translates to something along the lines of, no matter the differences between us, there is a common ground. That doesn't quite get the intent of the phrase, I know. But I'm sure your kind will pick up the nuances of the phrase as time goes on. So, human, thank you for joining the Federation. We welcome yet another Earth, and look forward to what you bring with you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 978. Story number one. Predator and Prey, written by the third one. Holy crap, those guys over there look exactly like predators. Josh urgently whispered to me as we walked into the only bar on some godforsaken asteroid in the middle of a moderately large trade route. Humans were still pretty new to the collective, so seeing new species in busy places like this was still a common experience. Luckily, the universal translators we tradesmen were equipped with usually made such encounters easier. Usually. I looked over to the corner of the room Josh was trying his best to point out to me as inconspicuously as possible. Damn, he really looked like an idiot pointing at them behind his hand like that. Predators, I asked, searching for who he meant. Like the sexual kind or the regular non-sexual hunters. Finally spotting them, I knew exactly what he meant. Oh, you mean like that ancient action movie, Predator, with Arnold Schwarzenegger? I guess they do look a bit similar. It's been a while since I've seen it, to be honest. Not similar, exactly the same. Josh was all wide-eyed and starting to sweat profusely now. He was actually scared of them. We gotta get out of here. 
Dude, it's just a movie. They're not gonna just tear up your spine out. Unless, of course, you keep being such a fecking idiot and causing some kind of intergalactic incident. I said, trying to avoid the situation that could lead to something stupid happening. Of course, with all very obvious staring and whispering at the doorway of the spa, we detracted some notice by a few of the patrons, including the predators in question. Both so-called predators stood up at their admittedly impressive height and stalked over to us. The other patrons were so eager to move out of their way that a couple tables were literally picked up and scooted to the side to make room for them to walk straight to us. They stopped in front of us, staring us right in the eyes. My hand drifted to my back waistband where my pistol hid, just in case. I glanced over to Josh, who damn near cracked himself and had sweat clean through his shirt. It was actually pretty impressive, considering how cool it was in here. The lead alien opened its mandibles, and our universal translator kicked in. Oh my god, Linda! I told you they were humans! We are so honored to meet members of the same species as legendary warrior, Dutch! At this, they both raised their arms into the air and yelled in unison, Dutch! Um... What the fuck, I said. After a few moments, the entire bar was silent. You are humans, yeah? Then you surely know of Dutch, the first warrior to kill one of our kind in single combat in thousand years. It is common knowledge that a video of the heroic fight to the death has been spread on your world as a documentary of the event. Oh, I've got to get a picture with you. The alien, apparently named Linda, said, as she gave a device to her partner and grabbed Josh by the arm, yanking him over roughly to pose for a photo. What the feck kind of name is Linda for a goddamn predator? It is just not right, and Christ, why must they shout every time they say Dutch? Wait, forget that. Do they mean that the movie was real? Wait, so that was real? Josh squeaked, obviously still afraid that Linda would bite his head off any second now despite the fact that, for all intents and purposes, the two predators appear to be... fangirling. Wasn't Dutch a character that Arnold Schwarzenegger played, he managed. Of course it was real! Wait, you... the first one said, his, uh, mandibles putting in slightly as he took a step back. What do you mean, real? You don't treat the recording of those two great warriors as sacred fact, he said, apparently quite shaken and insulted by the realization. You would walk over all the graves of our fallen hunter after such a glorious battle and not even acknowledge the blissful perfection of the Dutch, he growled menacingly. Linda again roughly pushed Josh away from her, joining her partner opposite him. They were both starting to look angry at our interpret disrespect or something and seemed about to charge or pounce or whatever it is you call it when a huge alien predator jumps on you and beats you to death with your friend's arm. Now wait, hold up, I said, raising my left hand non-threateningly while my right hand snuck to the back of my waistband again. We would never dishonor such a great battle. We just, um, um, actually have no idea how to get out of this one. What the feck kind of situation is even this? Suddenly, the universal translator picked up after. I looked around, confused as hell, while still keeping a hand on all faithful. Finally, I saw where the translator was getting it from. It was a barkeeper, a tentacle thing. 
three of its tentacles silently waving around in the air above its head, which, according to the UT, was how it laughed. Yeah, I never get tired of fucking with humans. Oh crap, that's great, the tentacle creature laughed, wiping what looked like a tear from its giant eye. Well done, you two, it said, gesturing at the two aliens in front of us. Here's your payment, it said, as it poured them a couple of drinks each. Josh and I looked at each other as the two creatures also started laughing, clicking their mandibles noisily, as they clapped each other on the back and walked back to the bar. What the feck? Josh and I said in unison. The barkeep, still chuckling, only one tentacle waving this time, called out to us over the din of a lot of alien laughter now filling the bar. Every so often, a human walks in here and mistakes the Thox as some creature from old movie. So I have an ongoing agreement with any Thok that gets recognized. The Thok frick with the humans. I watch and laugh as the human craps themselves and then give the fearsome predator free drinks as payment for the entertainment. I looked over at Josh, who had started walking towards the bar. Jay, where are you going? What? They got us good. Now I really feel like getting drunk and maybe going back to the ship with an exotic woman, he said wiggling his eyebrows at me, and as he went and sat next to fucking Linda. Well, I can't believe this, I said incredulously, throwing my hands up in defeat as I turned on my heel and walked out the door. I bid them all farewell with a nice fuck everyone in here, as I went right back to the ship, planning to drink myself into the oblivion in privacy. Hopefully I could forget that that had actually just happened and that Josh was currently trying to bred a predator. Jesus Christ, I need a new job. End of story. Story number two. Human minds are like old castles. Written by Guncaster. Human minds are like old castles. Built layers upon layers of primitive, ancient foundations hidden from plain view. The troglodyte, the lizard, the mammal, the monkey, all labeled under the impulsive id. And atop it all, the newborn observer, the ego, the self, the arrogant thing that spits on its ancestry and screams into the cosmos, I am man, and I am above your law. Sequestered in their fortress of civilization and prosperity, Hidden behind walls of comfort and consumerism, humans came to believe themselves to be weak. They came to think that they were no more than glorified prey animals, only able to survive thanks to technology and social structures. But when it comes to true conflict, true strife, when man is thrown into the wilderness and left to survive without a lifeline, the ego lets go of the leash. Just a little bit. It loosens the chokehold on its predecessors, the collective id. The primitive, by clever cave and the skittish mammal, the sheer, unadulterated feral violence of the reptile. Within every man, woman, and child, they locked away four billion years of violence and death. Four billion years of perpetual struggle and murder in the pursuit of dominion over the world, there was nothing more than to wipe humans from its surface. They don't have a civilian population. 
Behind every tree, every blade of grass, you will find the muzzle of a rifle, the edge of a sword, the air-ripping scream of a compressed plasma projector. Push them far enough, and they will graft their minds into beastly bodies so they may tear you to shreds the way their ancestors would. For you see, they've dealt their own fangs and claws on purpose, so that they need the tools and technology that they love so much to truly let their incredible violence out, so that there is a degree of separation between themselves and the instruments of their savagery. At least, that's what they were before. In the second millennium, before the Thought Eaters came for them, broke their precious tools, forced them from their home. For half a millennium, the remnants of man drifted through the cosmos, as little more than digital ghosts aboard a reliquary ship. When they settled upon their new home, they were no longer homo sapiens. They made it so they were as one with their tools. So their bodies were no longer anything more than another form of tool. Another weapon. Humans don't have a civilian population. The fire-dyed, metal-skinned monsters you'll see skittering about in the night, ripping apart your men, they're the same children that made a big show of running scared when they made Planetfall. Every monster and old fable, every seemingly supernatural creature you faced in your pointless conquest was merely a human letting go of the reins and seeing what the id would do if provided with a body capable of expressing boundless violence. The seven-armed, skull-faced, screeching thing that slaughtered your battalion, ruined your ship's engines, and left you stranded on a rock in the middle of bumfuck nowhere... You're looking at him. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 979 Feral, written by Archivist on the Mountain Even in a forested paradise, there are seedy bars with shadowy corners and people bent on achieving oblivion through the over-application of alcohol. This was one of those places. Unfortunately, my job was to keep him safe. The king was counting on the prince to succeed him eventually, and having his brain unpickled would be a bonus. And since this incipient sot would have the power of life and death over me, I was rather committed to the idea that he would be more functional than not. Um, your highness, sir, I pushed his shoulder a little. <laughs> the prince roused a bit and lifted his head from the table. Even in a low-class dive like this, the table was smooth and polished. No chance of a splinter wound to get infected and mar the royal face. And the proportions of the furnishings were graceful and serene, much unlike the inner state of my future sovereign. Yes, yes, gotta go think for a bit, he slurred, and I shook my head. Well, not outwardly, of course. We royal bodyguards were the epitome of unperturbable grace. While the prince had been a trifle uncontrolled in his earlier years, a bender of the steps really was out of character for him ever since he reached the century mark and started taking his place amongst us adults. This called for a listening ear, a compassionate heart. Actually, this called for an officer. Unfortunately, there was just me, and I'd only been dealing with the royal family for about 300 years. 
barely any length of time at all, really. But when the wind blows, the tree bends, and all of that. Anything in particular, my prince? I asked, sitting across from him. Yes, back to the wall, bow in hand on the outside, light not shining in my eyes. I wasn't a complete dunce in training. I was still in duty. It was just that my duties had unfortunately been expanded by necessity this evening. It's the humans. Um, we're doomed. The words were a little muffled by virtue of being spoken into the table, but less slurred than before. I didn't expect that to last. Now we were getting somewhere. The prince had just returned from the diplomatic embassy post in the human kingdom immediately to the south of the forest kingdom. It was supposed to give him a taste of the decisions made under pressure in an environment that was rather forgiving. The humans would scarcely notice any diplomatic missteps, and besides, he was only there for twenty winters, scarcely enough time to unpack before having to return. But the prince had returned with a stellar review from the ambassador, and the humans had been peaceful towards us for many of their generations. There wasn't any indication of walls or territorial disputes, or any of their city human gods seeking worshippers amongst the fair folk. We simply didn't have anything to argue over. So, what could the humans do to us? I ventured. I was baffled. The prince fumbled in his bow pouch and eventually extended his hand to me. I received a smooth, glass figurine, a stag, hoist to leap, with an incredible detail that I had not known glass could sustain. The eyes were wide with fright, the muscles of its haunches were tight with coiled energy. The velvet shedding from its antlers showed that it was just weeks before breeding seasons. A trinket from the court, given for homecoming. What is this? The humans made it, Araclan said simply. Not distinctly, but simply. But this is better than anything we could have ever made. How did they Chichilla, an artist of this talent? Everyone knows that Chichilla, the process of growing a youngling, of any species, for a particular purpose, is an exacting process. So, the appearance of an Alban artist of any medium is a work of a millennium. The compensation is that the Alban artist is always the best that he can be, simply because of their mastery and artistic skills and their deep understanding of the aesthetic principles. But this human glassware was immensely better than anything I'd ever seen produced by the last seven centuries, had the humans discovered immortality, it was the only way that they could develop this kind of talent. They also met a, a feral human. I frowned, but sparingly. I was a royal bodyguard and had an image to protect after all. What does that mean? The prince roused himself and sounded a little less slurred than a moment ago. Feral is a description of an animal that has not been tamed. A feral human is one that has not been raised by other humans. This lowers back, at worst. I repressed a frown again. I really didn't understand what he was getting at. The prince sighed. What happens when an elf is unable to be raised by other elves? What? Like me? I asked dryly. He started and raised his head fully from the table to look at me closely. I, I didn't know about that, about you. Uh, what happened before you joined the commonality? His diction was deteriorating to an amazing degree, 
as the wine took hold. I suspected that he was about ten minutes before he was out for the night. I don't really remember. I was too young to really know what was going on. I had a house in the untamed wilds. I suspect that my parents built it and they died in the orc attack. The prince nodded. The untamed wilds were a part of our border with those foolhardy brutes. I was on my own for about 70 years before I was found by a scout with a border patrol. I learned to read and caught up with my age mates and then attended the Royal Academy to learn martial skills. The prince nodded. And uh, what did you do in your house all on your own? I was confused and said as much. I lived as an elf, sir. And how much forest did you groom and garden? He said, sitting back. I had worked my way up to about a square league of Sylvian forest by the time I was found. The prince sat back and relaxed a bit against the wall. And... That's the point. Even without nurture of your kind, you still acted as an elf. You tended the trees without being taught to do so. The humans, uh, without being taught how to garden, they can't. They have no desire to garden without being taught. And even when they are taught, they don't necessarily want to. Humans are born with no knowledge and are a mess of unformed desires. The prince suppressed a belch. He had a way to go before he would have a deportment of even the city guard, much less a royal guard. Perhaps his chichilla went slightly awry. He finished, And that's why humans will doom us all. I was completely lost. Even this unsophisticated like me knew that there were several recent steps missing in the prince's statement. Excuse me, my lord, he sighed. It's all in how they are taught. It's how they grow an artist of that worth, he gestured at the glass thing on the table. In only thirty-five years, thirty-five seasons, the human younglings are taught by teaching them stories. If the stories match some of the desires inborn into the youngling, they, uh, they, they, they sprout from a seedling into a sapling, into a verdant, towering tree. And each human can be a master in their craft. But, sir, they are merely humans. That's just it. He met my eyes, and he's burning bright with terrible knowledge and despair. They don't belong to, to, to the land like we do. They, they can be artists and gardeners better than we. They can become scouts more cunning and determined than our best strangers. They, they can work metal to the same the dwarves. They could, someday, will master devices to boggle the gnomes. They, they can be as stealthy as a halfling and as greedy as a, a goblin and more. They will do it all with a reckless disregard for blood and life as an orc. They aren't bound to the land. And whatever land they are on, will serve them rather than as it should be. The stories they learn as sprouts teach them honor, thrift, compassion, wisdom, balance, struggle, sacrifice, justice, and mercy. Because for humans, these things must be learned. And then he began to whisper, And if they don't learn, they will settle 
on greed, treachery, betrayal, and cruelty. With this message shared, the prince finally gave in to the merciless dictates of too much wine. He dropped his head to the table and was gone for the night. His tichilla for deportment had missed a bit, but his tichilla for seeing threats of the forest was an unexpected success. I live differently now. My private quarters showcase art that has never been dreamt of by my people. Glass, porcelain, statuary, carving in wood and bone, painting of stunning realism and amazing imagination. There are instruments in brass that measure the distance and angles with precision owls have never needed, and others that produce sound and makes an experienced god weep. There are books of wisdom and knowledge that none I know can comprehend. I work furiously each day, honing my skills to defend against the day I fear when our doom comes boiling through the forest and we become useless. I pray to all the gods that are or ever were that the stories I create and sell to the human villages are enough to divert their growth and their dreams. I have a new nightmare. The terror I face each day gets no easier for how long I've borne it, and the prince can give me no comfort as he reports to me the growth and development of the humans. And we both know what I do. What we all do is futile, because there are more humans than just the southern kingdom. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 980. Story number two. Humans are individuals, written by Death Clock 36. The humans are a young species. Despite this, they had carved themselves a small area of territory in their local cluster by the time the wider galaxy became aware of them. We are the Akari, and like almost every other sentient species in the galaxy, we are a hive mind. The mind is what has allowed us to conquer our whole world, a car. It is what allowed us to unravel the mysteries of FDL travel, and thereby earn our place amongst the stars. Unfortunately, we were not the first to encounter the humans. That dubious honor fell to the now fallen Faraki. The Faraki were like us in some respects, in that their minds were all one. But unlike us, they used their single mind to subjugate many minor civilizations. The defeated minds were then forcibly assimilated into the Fakari's own as slave minds. While the greater minds in the galaxy represented too much of a challenge for them, weaker minds fell like wheat before the scythe to their armies. The Varaki first encountered the isolated human outpost. We were able to piece together what happened to the Faraki from their own fragmented reports and from the tales of the humans themselves. It began when the Faraki raiding party captured a human scientist working on a remote asteroid outpost. Had humanity been like us, the request for his mind's surrender would have been interpreted entirely different. But humanity is not like us. They are a species of individuals. When the Faraki issued their demand for surrender, the human scientists did not react with fear that the Faraki expected. Instead, there was a moment of deep confusion before the human replied, What do you mean, our mind? There is only one of me. 
There was another moment of confusion, this time from the Faragi. You are the sole survivor of your race, they asked, deeply perplexed. No, there are billions of us. I'm not really sure I'm the one you should be speaking to, replied the equally flummoxed scientist. The Faraki mind was set in place. They had met with truly unique species. Unfortunately, the predatory mature of the mind sought only to dominate rather than to learn. Alas, the tragedy that follows was solely on their own devising. Are there more nearby? asked the Faraki. Yes, there's a small facility just over the ridge. If you'd like to speak to my supervisor, said the scientist warily. Of course, it didn't take long for the heavily armed raiders to capture a score of undefended scientists in a laboratory. The captives were taken aboard the Faraki ship and immediately placed in assimilation cells. But then, the inexplicable happened. The moment the human minds entered the Faraki mind, there was a shudder that ran across it. As one, the entire Faraki species froze as their minds came under brutal assault. Entire communities forgot why they had gotten up to go to the kitchen, without a notion of what a kitchen even was. Waves of melancholy engulfed cities caused thousands of unprepared Faraki to take their own lives. Creatures used to unbreakable focus suddenly found that they could not concentrate on a simple task for more than a few minutes. The human condition spread like wildfire through the Faraki mind as the rebellious humans fought to break free of the unnatural process that they had undergone. The fierce individualism that we have come to know their species for ravaged the mindscape of Faraki society until it finally collapsed under the strain. Across the empire, millions of Faraki fell dead, like puppets with their strings cut. Millions more forcibly tore themselves free to escape the wave of death. Each of them took with them a small fragment of the Faraki mind until nothing remained. We Akari have since met with the humans. We have learned much from them, and they from us. But one thing we have learned above all else, human individuality will always endure. End of story. Story number one. Stress, written by Not Strong Bad. Uh, yes, when I said, uh, when I said, uh, do you really, do you really think you can win? I, I mean, uh, he, he didn't even have claws, and he thinks he, he could challenge me to. Uh, the centaurian mercenary, immersed in regaling his two broodmates with his tales of daring, looked up as I walked into the grimy bar. One of his four eyes was already drooping from the almost empty jar of whiskey in front of him and the other three darted around in sudden panic, drunkenly trying to pass these chances of escaping. When I didn't approach him, he seemed to regain his alcohol-augmented courage and continued his grand tale. And he, he thinks that he can uh, challenge me? Uh, and I, I, I said... The mercenary trailed off, unable to tear his eyes from me. Although I was curious to hear where he was going with his story, I was more concerned with the oil-stained bar about 15 feet in front of me. And I didn't take offense. Why should I? I know our reputation. I still check my waist for my K-bar. No use getting complacent now. Though in the dingy haze of a small bar, I doubt anybody noticed anyways. Do you have any scotch? 
I asked the Cerulean bartender. She was cute for a Cerulean. Once you got past the extra arms. Good lord, I've been by myself for too long. Sure then, she said, as I sat on a wobbly stool. On the rocks? Neat, and make it a double, please, I told her, trying to ignore the increasing amount of patrons looking at me. It's been three years since the war ended, but I still haven't gotten used to the stares, to the sneers. Humans are normally accepted on every Republic planet, but I can almost smell the fear mixed with revulsion in the air, like a bloated corpse on the other side of a tall barrier. You know, it's there, but you can't do much about it. Three years of living on this rock, of living amongst the locals, three years of constant vigilance, of doubling back on my route, of sitting on my back in the corners, of checking all exits. The war is over, I told myself. My mission is over. Jill, I say. I tell Turner the same thing every second Saturday, although I doubt he could hear me. As the bartender brings me my scotch, she notices me staring at the Centaurian mercenary in the wall-to-wall mirror behind her. I continue to stare until he looks away. Those feckers believe that staring at an enemy in the mirror gives them strength, or some such garbage. I sigh, wondering if this guy is trying to make a point. So, what brings you around here? The bartender asks me. Can't say I've seen you before in my bar. I look at her for a long minute, trying to determine the meaning behind her words. I become so accustomed to code of conversation that it takes me an uncomfortably long moment to realize that she was genuinely curious. Another unfortunate gift from my friends at the academy. I'm visiting, I lie. I live in the capital, but I was visiting with my old friend. I finish quietly, almost too quiet for her to hear. I sip on my drink, desperate for something to keep my mouth occupied. I have entirely too much on my mind and have no desire to share it with her. In reality, I live about ten blocks south of the bar, probably in the same crappy hab complex she lives in. I just don't leave my place very often. Why would I? Not much for me to do in this city other than drink and feck and fight. Although the latter has been lacking for a while now and the thick layer of smoke, the stench of the foundries, the choking masses of people. It's all a little too much. So I stay inside. It's better that way. That sounds like fun, she says. I used to have a friend that lived close by, but she moved off planet a few months ago, and now I have... Uh, as she keeps talking, I tune her out, wondering how in the seven hells this perky Cerulean ended up in this crappy dive. She's still talking when I see, in the long mirror, the Centaurian Merc get up and half saunter, half stumble towards the bar. Towards my spot in the bar. Towards me. God damn it! As I watch him get closer, I quickly take stock of his potential threat level. It's a habit I can't shake, no matter how much I drink or dope or try to get beaten out of my skull in the local combative leagues. The local illegal combative leagues. Designate Mark 1. Right hand on his waist, one hand on his left coat pocket. A small bulge in his coat on his right hit. Gun? Not sure, but probably. Keep going, but watch the hands. Loose pant legs could mean backup gun in the ankle holster. Gotta keep an eye on that. 
He's walking casually, so casually, it doesn't quite look right in his frame. Crap. His two bodies just shifted positions. Designated Mark II and three. Two watches, the exit. Three scooches to the edge of the booth, trying hard to look in any direction except mine. But I can see his eyes quickly scanning me. Double crap. Mr. One keeps approaching. I can feel my adrenaline levels rising quickly. My heart is beating a ragged tattoo in my chest, and I can feel it in my temples. Everything becomes sharper. I can smell the rancid sweat, feel his lumbering footsteps. He looks like he's at the end of a tunnel. The bartender yammering becomes a low, annoying buzz in the background. My breath becomes quicker and shorter, like my brain is focusing oxygen into my body, priming it like a rusty fuel pump. The thrumming with energy, my limbs begin to shake, as if begging me to let them loose. My right hand tightly grips the pommel of my service-issued blade, sitting on my belt under my shirt. As one gets close, I notice he's baring his teeth. Is he about to try and rip out my throat? Jesus Christ. I've heard rumors of Centaurian bloodlust, but I've never seen them do it. Wait, what? Is he talking? Hey man, are you a human that whipped my roll last week? I look at him, trying to put meaning to his words. He stopped walking and is now standing in front of me with a smile on his face. His hands are on his hips and he looks at me expectantly. I should say something. Yeah, that, that was me. Why? I respond. That was a pr- pretty b- badass fight, he says. Uh, my role was as a gawky jerk. Uh, good, good on you. Thanks. After an uncomfortable moment passes, he turns around and goes back to his table. I slowly let out my breath I didn't realize I was holding and turn back around to the bar once he sits down. As I will my heart to slow down, I realize the bartender has stopped talking and is looking at me with a mixture of shock and pity. I guess that's an improvement over disgust. Can I have another? I ask her. Sure, hun, she says, with the same cheeriness as before. I still can't tell if it's forced or not. As I drink my poison, I start thinking about the rest of my day. I hope Turner doesn't mind if I spend a little extra time in his grave today. I need to tell him about what happened, even if he can't hear me. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 981. Story number one. Wartime economy written by a lone donut. The Orion Arm Treaty has less of a unified government and more of an agreement to keep being nice to one another. Roughly six parsecs across and little under twenty species occupied the space. For the most part, were peaceful. Small squabbles would occasionally break out in the treaty, a border skirmish here, a bit of sponsored piracy there. But in the long run, the various nations of the OAT were fairly amicable. Free movement of species to work with one another and to live on others' planets meant that over time, cultural exchanges popped up. Military training exercises happened together. Trade was, for the most part, open and free, and the collective agreement to keep peace held well. Humans were the odd ones out in the collection. While they were overall fairly aligned, they seemed to be made up of micronations, smaller nations that operate slightly different from one another. 
This didn't really result in any changes to the overall operation and connectivity of humans to the larger hull, but the bureaucracy made them slower to react. This seemed like the humans' greatest weakness. Their inability to make timely and effective decisions often had them responding late to challenges, or simply not able to deal with trade disputes effectively. For the most part, even with their four-star systems, they were considered fairly backwater, and were only ever a minor player in the politics of the OAT. That was until the conflict arose. And not a minor conflict many were familiar with, no. This was something external. In the grand scheme of things, Sixish Parsecs is not a lot of territory, and exploration had been slowly expanding it. But with many asteroid belts rich with minerals, the need for rapid expansion had simply never existed. Production always managed to outpace need, so there were no calls for rapid expansion. The Squalor Empire changed that. A chance meeting on a system being surveyed meant that a Trillard survey ship came across the Squalor science ship. The two exchanged handshakes and a brief dialogue was opened with a report sent back of the discovery of a new species to the Trillard government. Soon after, the survey ship went dark. It was suspected something had happened, so a pair of patrol ships had been dispatched, only to find the wreckage of the survey ship. Its black box made it rather apparent what had happened. With the squalor ship being greatly offended that a collection of species existed outside the Empire, and destroyed the ship. Some light espionage later, and the OA team had a fair idea of the nearby neighbors. The squalor themselves had been an early spacefaring race, reaching the stars before most of their solar neighbors. Upon realizing there were other sentient species around them, they decided that it was the rightful place to rule, and had begun subjugating any species around them that showed signs of being able to reach space one day. A Class II system was created, and an empire was born. The idea repulsed the members of the Orion Arm Treaty. The idea of one species over another seemed terrifying. The squalor were repulsed for all their own reasons, that there were species treating others as equals, and the thought of their empire could be threatened by those drove them to a natural conclusion. They had to eradicate the treaty and subjugate them to prove their own strength. The war started with the Trillard world being besieged, bombarded from orbit for days on end until any military resistance fell. This spelled trouble for the treaty, who had, up until this point, only ever had fear of each other turning. Now the need for rapid military movement was needed, and all sections were called on for support. The treaty became a coalition, and all nations were called upon to support how they could. The coalition called on humanity and its steady mining operations to simply direct resources to other shipyards, fearing the inefficiency would spell doom in the conflict if they needed to focus on shipbuilding agreements. But this request was denied. Something had changed in the humans, and at first it was feared that they had turned coward and were only going to protect themselves. As resources stopped leaving the human borders, there was panic. It was when the human ships started to arrive on the front lines that things began to really get confusing. At first, they were little more than refitted and retrofitted ships. The odd patrol craft with bigger weapons and more weapons, 
paired with freighters and civilian ships turned to combat vessels. These ships would show up in space conflicts, hit their opponents hard, and turn and run. At first, this tactic was majorly effective, breaking squalor concentration of more serious targets to address the threat. This would let the coalition forces push back against the Empire and make ground. The next set of ships to arrive were more confusing, as cruisers, destroyers, and frigates arrived, joining the coalition forces and flanking maneuvers, slamming against the side of the Imperial fleets and dishing out far more damage than they were taking. Human marines were landing on planets and joining combat zones hot and hard, with armor and weapons none of the Coalition had seen before. And once the first human battleships joined the fray, the Coalition began to grow concerned. However, there wasn't time to dwell, as the conflict raged on, and they needed to push back. When the first Trillard world taken was reclaimed, the Empire sued for peace. But the humans denied them. It was like a spark on the underbrush of a forest that had long been quiet and peaceful. A fire had been lit, and now it was out of control. The coalition fleet became more and more human-dominated by the day. But the humans didn't have enough soldiers and sailors, so they began to equip their friends. A steady outpouring of ships from their four little systems they had reached fits of crescendo, and still the humans were unhappy. Engineers were sent to allies, their facilities retrofitted to fit the production needs of the human Goliath, and so more ships could be made. Other engineers were taught how to build schematics and plans shared, and the crescendo grew once more as the voices were added. Soon, it felt like the entire coalition was working at 200% what they could have before, as their fleets swelled, a massive beast that couldn't be slowed anymore. Human boots were the first to touch down outside the Empire quarters on Squalor homeworld, and human fingers instructed the Empire where to sign, and how they would go about rebuilding and repaying the peoples that had subjugated all these years. The humans defanged the beast, put its leaders in a cage, and made it a workhorse of its own destruction. As the war effort wound up, and the humanitarian effort slowly turned over to other parties, the humans grew quiet. In all their conquest, they had been gifted six new star systems, more than doubling the size of their territory. And with that, they turned back to arguing with themselves. The debate over how to populate these systems and how to develop them, consuming their little corner of the galaxy. And after five years, it was like it had never happened. And once again, the humans faded into the background, a minor player in a larger world. Diplomats were asked once about the whole affair, and they'd simply laughed it off, saying no one had to worry about it. It was the phrasing, though, that made many species write down and remember for many years to come. <laughs> oh, that! That was just a wartime economy. End of story. Story number two. I met the human three times. Written by Dicemonger. I met the humans three times. The first, I was but a child, and so was he. While exploring the gardens of the White Palace, I met him in one of the elaborate hedge maze, and with the ignorance of youth thought nothing of the difference in race. 
We played hide-and-seek for what must have been hours, and he shared the food he had brought, which I found strange and unsubtly flavored, but thrilling beyond any I had experienced. When his father found us, he begged my forgiveness and asked that I please keep the afternoon a secret. I was young, but I gave my promise, and I kept it. I visited the maze again at a later day, but the human boy was not there. When my father left the palace for his posting in the outer world, where time runs faster than at a royal seat, I left with him and it was decades before I returned. The second time I met him, I was nearly of age, but still young enough to make juvenile mistakes. I was again exploring the endless gardens of the palace, while balancing on a knife's edge of the black pool. I lost my balance and fell in. At that point, I had not yet learnt to swim, as my tutors had thought the subjects of history, magic, sword lessons, and many others to be greater importance. As my water-laden clothes dragged me towards the bottom, I could only reflect on the absurdity of an immortal life ended so early in such a foul manner. And then he was there, grabbing me, swimming to the surface, dragging me from the water. For but a moment, I took in his middle-aged face, the water running from the gardener's attire and his sputtering breaths. Then we were surrounded by people, helping me to my feet and hauling the human away. Laying a hand on the member of a superior caste, as all owls are to humans, and notably even more so, should have cost him his life. But because he had saved my life, his sentence was reduced to thirty lashes and banishment to the outer world. I tried to argue against the sentence, against any punishment, but I was patiently explained that the laws existed for a purpose, that the sentence was a mercy compared to what many argued would have been justice. The third time I met him, I lay defeated, as the rebel army pursued and defeated forces of the White Queen from the field. My leg was broken, and I could only watch as the humans went amongst those laying on the ground, laboring to save those with routed ears, and putting a sword through those with ears that were pointed. A man loomed over me, and I accepted my fate. By then, a hand fell upon the man's arm, stopping him, and the rebel leader stepped forward. It was but a few decades after I met him the second time, but life in the outer world runs faster, and in terms of human lifespans, he was near the end of his life. He looked down at me, and I will not deny that I was fearful as I looked up at him. But then he pulled the other away and said, Not this one. This one is different. And that, my brothers, are why I am now amongst you. To be honest, I don't even know for a fact that these three humans were the same one, though I believe they were. And if one human can possess the open-mindedness, selfless compassion, and forgiveness that this human portrayed, then I believe that we as a race can do so as well. We consider ourselves the superior race. In terms of military might and magical prowess, we might have been correct. But in terms of what really matters, in terms of the spiritual worth and purity of purpose, I believe that humans are who we should aspire to be. And I hope 
that you will join me in making that happen. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.